Welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing on the head coach of the Saginaw Spirit of the OHL, Chris Lazary. And what a conversation this was. I think you're going to get a ton out of this one from a hockey point of view, also from a leadership point of view, team building, culture, all this kind of stuff. Laz has worked his way up through the ranks of coaching. Uh, he's coached in the OJHL, whereas where I first met him a long time ago um, with the St. Mike's Buzzards, he's coached Canadian University. He's coached as an assistant in the OHL, and now he got his first head coaching job uh, in Saginaw. So awesome, awesome guy. And before we do get over to Chris, though, we're going to bring on another awesome awesome guy with a cute little puppy right there in his lap as we talk jeffrey lavecchio vex what's going on today my man just happy to have this little nash man in my lap and happy to be talking to you broski i like it man so this conversation was unreal huh really good and you know what i'm gonna wear something I, you know I, I always tell people own up to their mistakes I slept through the first eight to, to nine, 10 minutes of the podcast. <laughs> I, you know, so the listeners don't hear me in the beginning. I'm not going to lie to you. I set my alarm for 640. We were recording at seven and I popped up at like 712 or something like, oh my God, something's wrong. And I must've just hit the snooze button. Had a super long day yesterday. I went like six to six in the gym, tried to get a quick snooze and I overslept a tad bit, so I missed the beginning, but my God, I came in, and, and Laz is a phenomenal guy. I absolutely love the way that he thinks, um, especially towards the end of the podcast. We got into some really good stuff that I think coaches at any age can use, and it's some stuff that I really wish that you know, I could have been exposed to my first year junior, maybe, you know, when I was younger, not on the power play, like some ideas that I think will help coaches you can't really give a player confidence, but help players, help coaches help their players find confidence when they're not a power play guy, um, you know, and some leadership stuff that we talked about that I think is, is invaluable and, and really cool. This was, this was a good one for me. Help me. It's literally what I was thinking. <laughs> help me help, help you. <laughs> help me, help me, help me, Jerry. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it was great. I mean, um, you know, getting the chance to speak to him and, and we all have a, a common friend in Brandon Narado. And when I talked to Nar before, um, getting Laz on the podcast, just kind of, Hey, you know, you got any, any things to talk about any, any questions you think I should ask him? And he's like, dude, this guy is the man, like he is the best. And, uh, you certainly got that from our conversation yesterday and I learned a ton. I learned a ton just being able to shoot the breeze, talking some hockey and talking some leadership. And there's a lot of things that I'm going to take out of this conversation to be able to use with the players that I coach. And I think anybody who listens is going to be able to take a lot out of it too. Like we talked like kind of like big picture philosophy type stuff, but we also talked a lot of like actual things that he does with his team. That is just incredible that anybody can use. Yeah. I mean, we, we covered a lot and we covered some really good, like really, really good stuff. Some stuff I've never heard of before. Um, some stuff, you know, like I, I've never thought of obviously. Um, and, and it was just, 
some really cool stuff. I love, and, and, you know, it's funny. He talked about how, you know, he's coached with hockey Canada and stuff like that and how they love breaking into the smaller groups. And I immediately thought of uh, your coaching clinic you put on with the hockey think tank in Chicago, you know, what was that like two summers ago or whatever, Um, you know, breaking into those small groups. And he said something like just so simple, like even within a team setting, even when guys are together all, all the time, when you ask questions in front of a whole team, there's still going to be guys who are like a little bit nervous to speak up or ask a question and stuff like that. So what he really likes to do is break up into small groups. And all of a sudden he sees that guys are talking more guys are asking more questions to each other and stuff like that. And I immediately, I didn't say this when we were recording cause I didn't want to mess up the flow, but I immediately thought of when you broke us up into the small groups at the coaching clinic in Chicago for the hockey think tank coach clinic coaching clinic. And like, everyone was asking questions. Everyone was talking, everyone was sharing input. And I was like, man, like, you know, it, it just makes so much sense. And I mean, I'm not a guy who's ever really been scared. I mean, I guess at the NHL level, AHL level in the beginning, I'd, I'd be scared to raise my hand or ask a question, no doubt. So like, yeah, if you're going up a level, you can see that. And I just think like, it's such a simple thing, but like, if you can make the kids feel more comfortable, if you can have them teaching each other, if you can get them a little bit more confident in themselves to speak in those small groups, they're going to learn way more. They're going to, they're going to participate way more and you're getting more out of them. Yeah, no, no question. And, uh, it went from a lot of different, um, it went from a lot of different, uh, avenues. Like, you know, even when we're talking about leadership groups, you know, a lot of coaches at the higher levels will bring in their leadership groups once a week. Well, why not bring in a ton of different groups and get input from everybody <laughs> and, and build those relationships from coach to player, which is the most important thing. I mean, we talked about building relationships for a lot of this episode and how important they are into the fabric of being able to coach your players and also the, you know, the relationships that you have with players throughout the team. And so just that, that relationship building and the time and effort that you invest into it. And I say invest because when you put the time and effort into it, the return that you get back as a coach is exponential. The more, and, and I even talked about it on the pocket, if I were to go back and, and even coaching now, like how much of my day is on building those relationships versus watching video or doing pre-scouts or all the other stuff that go with coaching when at the end of the day, we're paid at the higher levels to win hockey games. And the more your relationships are better with your players, I can't say maybe I guarantee you're going to win more, but you're certainly going to put yourself in a better position to win more. No doubt about it. I mean, look at the stuff that's come out with Babcock and then think about the opposite end of the spectrum with like a John Cooper. I mean, you talk to any guy that's ever played for John Cooper from junior A when he was coaching here in St. Louis all the way up through the ranks. And it's like they just love playing for the guy because the relationships he builds with each player is, is a special bond. And, you know, we say it all the time. But people don't care how much you know until they – know how much you care about them. And it is so, so, so true. Yeah, for sure. And I also love the conversation about how to, how to develop your younger players, maybe when they don't have like a bigger role in the team too. Cause obviously you get that in junior hockey, you get that in college hockey, you get that to a certain extent in professional hockey too. And like finding a way to, and that was a lot of what we talked about. And that's like the, the age old question right now at, at all levels from youth all the way up to the pros is like, how do you merge development with winning? Like, how can you get the most out of both of those? Because, you know, a lot of what people say is you can't have one without the other, or it's one or the other. And just finding a way to develop 
the players first and it leading to wins, <laughs> which can be difficult at times because at the, especially at the higher levels, you're paid to win hockey games. But I love that part of the conversation too, where, you know, you talk about the development in terms of how it can help you to win hockey games. Yeah. And it was really cool also to hear about, you know, he just touched on it briefly, but like the different factors as a, you know, he's, he's coaching major junior, but he's a professional coach. This is how he feeds his family, you know, um, hear about all the different factors that kind of come into his head as he's deciding playing time. You know, I got to keep my star guys happy. And then the NHL teams want the guys who they've already drafted to be playing and seeing all situations. But then he's got to worry about next year when the stars leave and the young guys are coming up and now they're going to be the leaders. And he's got like all of these influencing factors going into how much he's thinking about playing time. And he obviously is a guy with a big heart and cares about development or else, you know, he wouldn't have talked about being beat up after some games like, ah, man, I should have got my young guys in there. And he's talking to his assistant coaches his 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 gm about that stuff you know what's funny his assistant coach he said jared nightingale and i should have told him this on the podcast if you're listening last funny story i was playing against nightingale i don't really know him but i was playing against him in the american league and i had one shift where i was getting a little rambunctious out there and i was running around and i i crushed a guy like center ice puck dumped in i ran in i ran him in the corner and he's a big dude he's a tough dude nightingale and i was skating back to the bench for a change because i just threw a couple bodies and i was sucking wind and i could hear him skating up the ice like F you, Lavecchio, F you. <laughs> and as I'm going to the bench, right as I'm about to step into the bench, the puck comes like right next to me. I didn't even know it was near me. Good awareness, Jeff. And uh, who had it? Dale Weiss. Dale Weiss gets the puck. He, I think he jumped on the ice. I'm coming off a long shift. And he gets the puck. And so I hit him. And he's a, he's a top dude, man. He's got a head like the size of a freaking football, two footballs. And, uh, and I hit him and he's like, you want to go? And whenever anybody asked me to go, I just say yes. Didn't even care who it was. And, and so I start fighting him. And it's a terrible fight. I'm at the end of the Weiss or Nightingale? Weiss, Weiss. Oh, okay. I think Nightingale's even tougher than Weiss. So, and, and so like I'm fighting him and like, I just tried to get him two good shots and I was dead tired. And then I just kind of held on and I, ha- I had to wear like a special helmet because this was already after my bad concussion. So like I had a special helmet on that I could hear everyone on the, on the Hartford bench just to, hey, concussion bucket. And I think he might've even jabbed it off my head. Like, oh, concussion bucket came up. And they're just <laughs> chirping me and I'm laughing, like taking a couple and then the refs jumped in. But yeah, it was pretty funny. I, I it was nightingale so uh i thought that was funny it's a small world isn't it oh my god it's so small it's unbelievable <laughs> yeah this is uh yeah this at the end of the day again we connected with Laz again I, I i knew him briefly from way back in the day as he was just kind of getting started with his coaching career and and to see him now where he's at being the head coach of an ohl team and not just the head coach of an ohl team but a very very successful head coach of an ohl team uh nonetheless and um just you know kind of hearing his his methods and and his philosophies on on how he plays and how he wants his team to play and the identity that he wants to create it was just a a really really special episode i think and i think everybody's going to get a lot out of it i know i did and um and yeah so let's get over to him pretty quick but before we do get over to laz um as always every episode now we are going to do a drill uh through icehockeysystems.com uh who is our drill sponsor right now and uh it's funny like before we end up talking about this drill so i got a text first of all um so daryl belfry who we had on the podcast uh, about a month ago um vex he is our most downloaded episode now and it was just literally like a month or so ago 
And so that one obviously was one that uh, a ton of people shared and, and a ton of people really got a lot out of. So appreciate everybody for downloading that and, and sharing that. And I know, you know, that was a really special one for us. We felt like we learned a ton. So one of the things, so Daryl actually texted me the other day because we're doing this drill sponsorship now where it's just one drill that we put out. And he texted me, he was basically like, don't just put one drill out. Like that's not how it should work. It should be progressions to a certain thing that you're trying to, um, you're trying to accomplish, you know, a certain skill or a certain tactic or whatever, where it's not just one drill, like put out the progression instead of that. Um, so I thought it'd be good to maybe talk about those things. Cause we only have a certain amount of videos that we have to, you know, to be able to put up on social media, but I challenge all of the listeners and something that we'll talk about a little bit right now. Like when we talk about these drills, think about the skills and think about the tactics and why we're doing these drills. And then think about how you can progress to that certain drill or, take that drill and progress it even further into something that you can use tactically, um, something that you can use to make your players better throughout the games as well. So again, like for us, you know, when you're emailing us or giving us, you know, messages or whatever, and, and interacting with us on social media or whatever, like, please feel free to like give us opinions that aren't necessarily positive. Like if you think there's something you want to hear more of, or you disagree with something or stuff like that, Jeff and I love that too. Jeff likes his pats on the back. I know, you know, all that kind of stuff, the likes on Instagram and everything. We'll stick taps for Jeffrey. <laughs> um, but like it, we, we appreciate all that stuff and, and, and uh, you know, Daryl reaching out and texting about this. I think it's great because we should be doing that more in practice. We should be doing more progressions. We should be building on certain skills and building on certain tactics that we want to accomplish during games. Um, so just before we go through this drill, um, something I think is really important for coaches if if you want to make your players better you want to get better yourself um i don't know if you have any thoughts on that jeff before i go through the drill that we want to do here i'm just gonna say daryl my text message must have got lost in the mail uh, <laughs> i did not receive a text daryl no i'm just kidding what what a great dude man working with the best players in the world and he takes time to text you to make it more efficient more effective for all of our listeners Thank you, Daryl. And there's obviously a, a serious reason that he's our number one download, downloaded podcast in such a short time. I have so many people that have just pumped that podcast and absolutely loved it and learned a ton. So very cool. And people like him are, are why we do this. Like he's one of the best people in the world and he takes time out of his day to, to make you, you what you're doing, our show, our, our listeners learn more. So thank you. Yeah. And I think Laz is going to have this kind of effect on people too. this podcast here that's coming up. Um, but before we do get over to, to Laz, let's talk about a drill that, that, um, this is a kind of a staple that we used to do a lot at Cornell, um, that, um, has a lot of different facets to it and it's called the up and back one V one, two V two drill. And so how this one works is it starts off with a one-on-one just straight down the ice. So you have, let's, yeah, let's say you have two colors, you have your white forwards in the corner, and then you have the black defense as, as the D right on the blue line right there. And then on the other end, you have the white defense and the black forwards. Okay. So just to start the drill, it's a one-on-one down the ice. And obviously there's never a one-on-one straight down the ice, but we're just starting the drill that way, just to start the drill that way. Maybe there is a better way to do it. I don't know. Um, so it's a one-on-one down the ice. And then as soon as there's a play made uh, a shot, or maybe the D knocks the puck off the forward stick, coach will blow a whistle and that activates the black forward and the white D to go down the ice, the other side. 
And what happens is that defenseman who just took that one-on-one, he's now jumping up into the play to make it, try to make it a two-on-one. That forward who just went on forwards uh, on offense, he's trying to get back and he's, or he's trying to get back to back check and make it into a two-on-two. And then, so it's a continuous drill with the coach blowing the whistle where it starts off as a one-on-one, but then it's two-on-two the rest of the way. So it's a two-on-two back. So you're working on a rush and a back check all at the same time. And what's great about this drill is uh, some of the things that you're working on defensively, obviously you're tracking back, but it's huge for communication. So that defenseman who's taking on that two on two, you have to recognize where your back checker is. You have to recognize where the two forwards are that are coming up and you have to communicate with your back checker on what to do. Uh, Take the guy with the puck or it's take the guy without the puck. I got this guy. So there's a lot of communication that goes with it defensively. And then offensively as that defenseman who's trying to get up in the play, it's as soon as you hear that whistle, it's quick three first steps. How fast can I get up in transition offensively to get up in the play, right? And then for the guy with the puck, now you have to look at the situation. Now, do I have a two-on-one? Is it more of a two-on-two? Did that defenseman fall and it's more of a one-on-two and you have to you know, read that play and make your play accordingly to how that is. So um, it's just a great transition drill. It's also a little bit of a hidden bag skate um, where you get the heart rate up real quick. But again, starts off with just a quick one-on-one. That's only to start the drill, not very game-like situation. And then it's just working on those habits of D, get up in the play. Forward, how fast can you get back to back check? How much are you communicating as forwards and defense as you're coming back on your track or as you're getting up in offense? And uh, there's a lot of great stuff to do with it. So again, how can you progress this drill now? One thing that you can do is you can add another forward. So it's a two-on-one back three-on-three. Now there's a little bit more chaos. Now there needs to be a little bit more uh, communication. Uh, It's a little bit more game-like because obviously there's five players on the ice. (laughs) So two-on-two all the way down the ice isn't necessarily a quote-unquote game-like situation. Um, you can do it that way. Uh, you can have certain standards like, Hey, on your entry, you need to cut in the middle or you have to have a, a mid lane drive and, and just kind of stack certain skills that you're trying to implement with your team onto those. Um, and, and I think is, again, it's a, it's a fantastic drill. I love that. And, and one thing I noticed, uh, and maybe I guess I forgot about just cause I'd been not, not been that age for a hot minute is when I was coaching 16s and 18s, triple a, like one of the biggest troubles we had was coming back into the zone and the d-men talking to the forwards as the back check is occurring who's got who's separating the guys and then who if the guy pulls up at the blue line who's supposed to take him and you know i think it always comes down to communication because you can write oh the d-man always takes him but if you got a bad gap you don't want to be 20 feet out of the way and then you sprint up to that line to get the guy who pulled the gretzky uh you know curl or whatever they're calling it now and uh so so like just getting the the kids and the guys to communicate this drill is perfect for it this is a drill we did in pro or something very similar to this every single team i played on all 10 years is extremely important to teach kids the value of communication on the back check absolutely and and on offense too i don't think it's just the back check it's interesting you say that so i think i mentioned last episode um, so I'm doing a deep dive into two quote unquote 200 foot centers you know really good two-way centers and i'm i'm studying if that's what you want to call it the last five selkie winners and it's funny because the one thing that even though defensively they won the selkie one thing they're not great at and i don't think anybody is really great at is sorting things out when there's some chaos because it does it takes a lot of communication to be able to do that and it's a skill that is not taught 
nearly enough nearly enough and it's such a habit like if you go and you watch pro hockey you even go watch a pro hockey practice and you know this like it's pretty vocal you know like guys are talking all the time um you, even you watch those inside access shows or those behind the scenes shows um you're you're hearing a lot of communication on the ice but even so with the plays being made so quickly at the, the highest of levels, even them trying to sort things out with their deed, like they're not, they're not necessarily great at it. And so just offensively, it's something, how can you create some chaos where people have to sort things out by creating some switches, um, setting picks, um, having a lot of movement, all that kind of stuff. And then how do you remedy that? It's communication. You have to have communication. And coaches talking about communication, think about what's happening on a back check. Who is facing the entire play? Your defenseman. So like I would tell my D-men every year, like no matter what our defensive scheme is, center comes back to the middle, wings to the break, it doesn't matter. In the game, things are going to break down. Those D-men, like you have to force them to point and talk. I got this guy. Yeah. You take him. You take him. I got him. I got him. That is so insanely valuable and so important because a forward on the back check's just putting his head down and he's... I mean, hopefully his head's not down, but you know what I'm saying? He's just trying to go as hard as he can to get back. But, you know, the D-men can see everything up ice. That forward can't see who's behind him, how close guys are. He might not have the best vision looking left to right. The D-men can see everything. So get your D-men to point and talk. I got him. You take him. You take him. You take him. It is so important. Your your, uh, goals against off of the rush on a back check will go down dramatically if you focus on making your D-men be vocal. Yeah. And one of the things that we always talk about with our players is like, it's one thing to communicate and there's one thing to really communicate. (laughs) So part of that's the nonverbal communication, like you're saying, you know, pointing things out. But the other thing that I always tell the player, change their mind. You, You have to be forceful in your communication where you're changing somebody's mind. And that's both offensively and defensively, because with the puck, you know, there's players and there's certain times where they do have their head down and they're not really seeing everything. So when you call for the puck <laughs> for the listeners, Jeff just raised his hand. <laughs> so, so when you call for the puck, like you got to demand the, puck. it's not calling for the puck. It's demanding the puck, change that guy's mind. Cause he's got something in his head that he sees that he's going to do. And if he doesn't see you, but that's the play to be made, you have to change that person's mind. So how forceful and demanding in your conversation, not your conversation in your communication, are you with that player? Same thing defensively, be the, ge- I talked to the defense, but be the general, like you are the general, you are seeing, like you said, you're the one facing the play. You're seeing everything um, that that's coming right in front of you. And so you have to be, be the general and clearly and concisely and loudly talk about what you want the other players to do because there's the, there's calling for the puck and then there's demanding the puck there's communicating and sorting things out. And then there's communicating and sorting things out. So I think there's two parts of it. One is you have to do it. And the other one is you have to do it in a way where you're going to get something out of it as well. I'm having trouble controlling the volume of my voice. <laughs> Loud noises. Austin Powers. But yeah, I, I did, mean, I did Anchorman. You did Austin Powers. <laughs> listeners, massively important. And, you know, I always use myself an example because I know what I did to, to not be as good. And I kind of feel like I always, you know, was able to achieve more. I scored a lot of goals in my career, not being a really a skill guy because I demanded the F out of the puck. If I was open, that guy with the puck knew it 12 out of 10 times. If I'm in the slot or if I'm standing in front and there's nobody covering me and a D-man's got it on the point, I am screaming, shoot, 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 shoot. 
And like quickly, like D-men would know once they started playing with me that I'm going to tip everything they threw at me. And so when they would hear that, they wouldn't even look at the net. They knew that that meant I was alone and they'd rip in a quick wrister and I'd tip it, you know, shelf, what's up, peace, or something, you know, get a rebound and, and create some chaos. But same thing, like you're, sla- you're the guy who's slashing behind a D-man. Maybe that guy just gets the puck in the zone and he hasn't got time to get his head up and see everything. But if you're coming through and you see that you're going to, you know, get a breakaway, you're behind the D-man, scream, boards, 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 make him pass it to you. Like, I literally cannot explain enough how much that helped me score a ton of goals in my career where I wouldn't have if I wasn't making guys pass it to me. So I love that you said, like, change his mind, demand that they do something because you're seeing it and maybe they haven't had time to get their head up. It is a game changer, guys, girls, listen to that and start to talk and talk loudly and forcefully. So two things I have to add to that. Number one, as somebody who hates the saying 110% because you only have 100, you just said 12 out of 10 times. So I was just trying to be funny. All right. Okay. Got it. <laughs> um, and then the other thing too is like communication is a habit. It's a habit that you can't just turn it on during the games. Like that's something you have to, as a coach, demand of your team in practice. And like – I make my team do 20 push-ups pretty much every practice because they're not calling for pucks. And it's, it's a, it's a skill. It's a habit that is not at the forefront of everybody's mind as they're going through and calling for pucks or whatever it may be. So in, in every drill, like find a way to hold them accountable for, for talking because we're talking about it so vehemently right now because we think it's that important to the development of players and to winning hockey games and being on the same page. And it just makes the game so much easier for all your players. Like it's something you have to demand. Um, it's, it's, it's that important, you know? One, one of my three things that will make any hockey player better is talking, talking a lot, talking loudly. I say it to everyone I train, every speech I give to teams. It literally made me such a better hockey player. And I made my line mates do it because me as a guy at the upper levels who didn't have the skill guy vision, if I'm battling down low and twisting and turning and stuff, I needed my line mates to tell me where they were. And I just got good at like finding where their voice was. And I just pass it to their voice rather than me having to look up because I didn't have that skill at that highest level. So like, I was like, the more you talk to me, the more you'll get the puck for me. So like, again, like making all your players better, it's going to help the guys who don't have as good a vision when their line mates talk to them. And coaches, Toph just said he's making his, his teams do that. You know, I know we've talked about this a lot. I'm going to say it again. Something I implemented with our 16s and 18s when I was coaching in the first couple drills, if you didn't call for the puck, I instructed the next guy in line not to pass it. Yeah. So you ruin the drill. So the guy who's going around shooting drill, whatever, if he's supposed to catch a puck and he doesn't call for it, the guy who's passing is not allowed to pass it. If his teammate doesn't call for it. Now he ruined the drill and it's very obvious he ruined the drill. So it's on that guy. If he wants to get a shot in his cookie at the end, he better call for the puck. I guarantee your players start to talk a lot more and that'll just translate throughout the rest of the practice. Yeah. And if you think about it, like you talk about it from, um, maybe a non-skilled player perspective, um, I would encourage everybody like go to YouTube and watch. We'll, we'll throw Canada a bone here. Watch Sidney Crosby's Olympic gold medal overtime goal against the U S because again, has that puck in the corner and you hear very loudly Sidney Crosby call for that puck. And again, puts just puts it into an area. I don't think he would have known that Crosby was there. Had he not said something and they end up beating the U S to win the gold medal. So it's just, again, it just makes the game so much easier when you communicate. 
<laughs> so I think we're good. I think we beat this one to a dead horse. So I do want to get over to, to Chris, to Chris Lazary here, because this was an awesome conversation. Thank you to our title sponsor, gel sticks. Uh, these guys are awesome. Go to G E L S T X.com. Use the coupon code think tank one word to get a discount on awesome training sticks, uh, that are weighted. Jeff uses them in the gym. NHL teams use them. The NTDP uses them. Colleges use them. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic product. I think they just came out with another piece of their golf line too. So they don't just do hockey. They do uh, golf as well. Um, so for all you golfers out there, uh, if you want a gold jacket or green jacket, who cares? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, go to gelsticks.com. Again, those guys are, are fantastic and, and such a great product. Uh, we already talked about icehockeysystems.com, did our drill there. They're a fantastic resource and website too uh, for anybody that's looking for some drills and, and some any kind of hockey talk as well. Um, thank you to Train Heroic, Jeff's training app. Go to download the Train Heroic app on your phones. Get Jeff's workouts. They are fantabulous. And thank you. Did I just say fantabulous? You did, but it's the only word that describes my workouts. So continue. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, and then thank you, thank you, thank you to all the listeners out there that continue to support us. You know, we're a ton of episodes in. We're actually very, very close. We're probably going to hit it in the next couple of weeks to half a million downloads of the Bingo! podcast since we started. Um, so we just appreciate your support. We appreciate you sharing our podcast uh, with your hockey communities, however that is, whether it's by sharing it on social media, you know, through email or, or whatever. Um, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are why we do this. Uh, we really appreciate everything. And you guys are going to absolutely love this podcast here with the head coach of the Saginaw spirit of the Ontario hockey league. So without further ado, here we go with Chris Lazary. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast from Saginaw, Michigan, the head coach of the Saginaw Spirit in the OHL. We have the one and the only Chris Lazary. Chris, how you doing today, man? I'm great, buddy. Thanks for having me. I've listened to uh, lots of your your content, and your episodes, and uh, you know what? It's exciting to get on one like this because I think you do it for the right reasons, and I'm happy to uh, be a guest. Awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And we know you do the same thing, doing it for the right reasons and, and have had a ton of success in a lot of different places. So excited to talk to you and, and uh, you know, just to kind of start things off, just to kind of introduce you to everybody. Um, how'd you fall in love with the game? I know you grew up in Whitby, Ontario, the home of one of the most uh, notable Cornell alumni and Joe Newendike. Um, but uh, actually, you are not the, the, the first. We had Mike McKenzie on here way, way back. And he, I know he's a good Whitby boy too. So um, growing up in Whitby, uh, great Canadian city. How'd you fall in love with the game? Yeah, I was probably a little bit different than the traditional hockey player. Like I played a lot of baseball. I was a really good baseball player growing up. And um, a, a guy named Blaine Down moved on to my street. And he was he was probably the best player on the 82 group, the uh, Whitby Wildcat AAA team. And, you know, I started going to games, watching him play. So we would have been, I think we were in grade seven. I, I was following him around. And what I quickly realized was, Number one, hockey is a lot more exciting than baseball. And two, <laughs> way more people came to watch the hockey game. So we would start playing street hockey every day. And I just decided that I wanted to be a hockey player and um, played one year of house league. Then I played double A and then made the triple A team. And I think that combined with uh, having Dave Branch as, as my coach of minor hockey in Barkley Branch was, was young then. He's not too much older than me, but he was one of our coaches. And then being around a guy like Dave and his influence on you and just watching his life and how great his life was 
from the game. And I think uh, I was lucky enough, kind of a funny story where I drove with him to a game was myself, Kyle um, and Dave. And we drove to play. I remember we were playing Barry and we we're on the way home. We stopped and get McDonald's and then he's on the phone and he's, he's got phone hockey conversations the whole time with some prominent hockey people. So I'm, I'm awestruck, but I'm watching him talk. And I think right there, I knew, I didn't know what I wanted to do in hockey. Obviously I wanted to be a player, but I knew for whatever I was going to do in my life, it had to be hockey related. And I just, I loved, uh, it's the best year of my life playing hockey for Dave. And he just, he really gave me that love of the game and, uh, you know, watching Leaf games with my old man growing up as well. I think all that stuff just kind of led me to hockey. So what was it about Dave? Obviously he's a huge figure in, in hockey. Um, like what was it about what he did or maybe the type of environment that he put you guys in that allowed you to fall in love with it? Because I think that's, that's gotta be the goal of every youth coach, um, or mentor out there. Um, you, you don't get better without passion and wanting to get better and, and stuff like that. So what was it about the environment he created or what he did that, that allowed you to grow that? Well, one thing that stuck with me that, I still think rings true for myself is that he truly, you truly had the belief that he cared about you as a player, but more about as you as a person. And, um, you know, that year, I just think it's probably one of the first year in sports where you got a coach that, you know, has your back and cares about you, the person before the hockey player. And you know what? He was hard on you. He held you accountable. And I liked that from him, but he, he just cared. And, and, uh, such a leader and he has a presence like Dave obviously has a presence, but his love for the game, like for him to go back, even, you know, not too long ago, not too many years ago, still do minor hockey with how busy he is at his work and his job and, you know, developing the CHL and running the OHL to him to give back to youth hockey and go through the grind and all the challenges that come with being a youth hockey coach. He just loves the game and he loves, he loves the kids and he loves coaching kids. And I think that love and that passion, I felt it as a player and I try to still use that today coaching my teams. That's awesome. So what, like, what kind of advice would you give to some youth coaches that are out there that might be listening just in terms of like, cause that's, I mean, it's, it's hard to be a youth coach and it's hard to be passionate all the time. Like, you know, a, a lot of, youth coaches are volunteers that have nine to five jobs. And sometimes when they get to the rink, it could be a little bit of tough sledding just because, you know, you might have three kids of your own and it's just, you know, an, another a couple of hours that you got to freaking bring it right. Like you got to bring that energy. You got to bring that passion. Like, and, and I agree with you, like, it's such an important thing, just like leading by example with how much you love the game. And uh, so how, like, if you had any tips or had any advice for any of the coaches out there to, to kind of disseminate that upon the kids, what would it be? Yeah, it's, it's probably another thing I learned from Dave <clears throat> when I when I got into coaching. He he brought me back to kind of help out with one of his AAA tryouts, and we got talking. And at the end of the day, it's true. Like you have to do it for the right reasons. It's about the players. I know a lot of coaches want to, you know, they start in youth. I started in youth hockey myself, and I've you know I've been really very fortunate to develop it into a career. But and when I started, I I didn't know this at the time, and I learned this. I thought it was about me trying to get my goals as a coach. And when I quickly realized it's not, you have kids that you're responsible for kids that have dreams just like yourself. And I'm not saying coaches can't have goals to move to the next level, but make it about the kids, make it about their development. You know, it's not about winning. It's about developing the person and then the hockey player. And I think, you know, myself, when I've gone through hiring here in the OHL and I, and I do get resumes from guys from minor hockey or guys from junior B or junior A, what I'm really looking for is not, I never look at their wins losses because I don't care. It's about, you know, do they develop players? And when people talk about their program, what do they say? Is it a fun experience? Are they allowed to enjoy themselves? Like all of those things that you kind of buzzwords out there that you hear, it's true though. You have to 
make it about the kids, especially in minor hockey. It's, they have, you know, goals and dreams and it's, you know, a huge part of their life. And you've got to create that environment that's about them and about them developing, not about you winning as a coach. So you feel good when you leave the bench. Yeah, man, that's so true. Just like player centered coaching is, is, uh, man, I feel like it's almost like a lost art now. I, I feel like the profession of coaching has become really professionalized at like the youngest of even ages, you know? And, and, uh, so it's, it's, it, it's gotta be hard for a lot of these youth coaches out there to like hear what you're saying. It's gotta be amazing though, <laughs> because so many times as coaches, you feel like we're being judged as, you know, our win and loss column goes, but at the end of the day, like here's a very successful Ontario hockey league coach that coaches some of the best players in, in the world saying like when he hires people, he does not look at the wins and losses. You know, he wants to talk about, um, the, the other things and the development and the skills and the relationships. And, and, uh, you know, I, that's why you're such a successful coach is because those things are important to you. I think the, the minute that you put the, the results ahead of the process, you're, you're kind of screwed and, and you're not going to get the wins and the losses. So I just think that player center approach is, is such an important thing. And, and I think like so many people need to hear that, what you just said, like as an Ontario hockey league coach, like, that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> it, it is, it is though. Like it's, it's, I feel like that's what everybody kind of wants, but it's not at the end of the day, what's most important at the youngest of levels. And I still think it rings true at our level. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it changes a bit because, you know, you're feeding your family and it's a, it's a job now for myself as a coach, but you want longevity and, and uh, you want to make a career and you want to, same thing. You want to try to move to the next level. Well, it's not just winning. Like you hear more and more there coaches that get hired have a history of development and developing players. And we've kind of taken that approach in Saginaw. You look at the coaching staff with Jared Nightingale and, and uh, Jesse Messier and Garrett Rutledge and, you know, Dave Drinkle, Brian Prout and everybody that surrounds our organization. Yeah, we want to win games and we know that's the end result, but there's multiple steps or multiple things you need to do before you worry about winning. And that's centered completely around the environment you create, how you treat your people and how you develop your players. And we always try to get outside the box with player development. We try to look at things differently, but we know that if we can give each player and just build their tool set, you know, exponentially, whether they drop, drop into another program, they're going to have success because they have the tools to play whatever system you want. But for us, they get better year after year. And look, we're not perfect. We do make a lot of mistakes, but we, we have a continual evaluation process where we try to figure out where we can get better from a development standpoint, practices, gym, how we show video, how we talk to our kids. So, and really at the end of the day, what I've learned the most probably Topher is like building relationships, relationships with kids. If it, that's, I think our best asset is, I'm 38 years old and everybody on the staff is either 38 or younger. And we just, we dial into our kids and they trust us and we trust them. And it's really, it is a partnership and it's such a fun way to coach, I guess, for coaches out there. If you can get that kind of in your organization where it's like that with your players, where they're not afraid to come into your office and you got a true relationship and there is back and forth and there is respect. It's so much fun to coach and way better for development. That's, that's what we've recognized. So we think we're on to something. We're trying to figure it out just like everybody else. <laughs> everybody is. That's right. It's so true, man. Like, so I, I haven't been a coach at the college level now for, for almost five years. And, you know, I've branched out into trying to learn about leadership and team building and, and not just, it was funny. I was just having a conversation with an NHL scout today of, of all people just about how like, we're kind of like, 
we don't really feel like talking sports or hockey much <laughs> when we want to like learn things in terms of team building, because there's so many other disciplines out there that can teach us things. And it's almost like we keep recycling and hearing the same things and the same things and the same things when it comes to sports. And, and uh, it's just, it, it's really, really interesting because team building is, and, and when you talk about relationships, I think about like, my day when I was a college coach. And I think about how I spent my day as a college coach. And a lot of my day was like figuring out the opposition. And a lot of my day was watching video. And a lot of my day was administrative stuff. And if I were to ever go back and do it again, like let's say my relationships, I spent 40% of my time on taking kids out to lunch or bringing them in to watch video or just whatever, something where you're having a conversation and kind of like, I would put that up to like 80% now, <laughs> you know, cause you're right. It is, it's, it's so important. And for all the coaches out there, like, I don't know how you evaluate what you do, you know, every year, I'm sure you, you have certain points during the year where you kind of evaluate, but I feel like that's something that all coaches out there, like how much of your day is devoted to those relationship building? Because I feel like everybody agrees. Everybody says it's about the players. Everybody says it's about the relationships, but how many people actually walk the walk and put in the structure and the time necessary to develop those relationships? I feel like it's very different. And it was for mm -hmm. me when I was a coach. And, and uh, you know, if I were to go back again, I would do that differently wholeheartedly. Yeah. I, I, oh yeah. I agree with you. Like, I think uh, it's funny too. Like I've learned it's, it's a struggle as a head coach sometimes because I always make time for the players. Like when they come in, I make sure I'm away from my computer. You're walking around. I'll go sit in the dressing room where, you know, where we look at it myself when you talk about year after year is like, how do you grow your organization? So yeah, you got your players, but how do I make her, how do I get better with my staff and management and our scouts and everything else? And it's uh, for me, like I sometimes lock myself into the room during the day trying to get my work done. I don't really communicate enough with my staff. So <laughs> what like, but that again, like you try to build your team, it's not just building your players, it's building everybody and, you know, making sure you're having proper conversations with your assistants and, you know, having time for them and, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing job to be a head coach. It's a huge responsibility, but if you love it and, and you're, you know, you're trying to get better every day, it's like we said, you read books and you, you read books on different disciplines and you look at even books on organizations and what can you take to make our organization better? And again, nobody's perfect here. It's a continual work in process. You got to be humble and, and be able to admit when you make mistakes. But I think conversations, communication with everybody are like, in our organization is huge. We're starting now with our scouting staff now, like where can we identify players and where have we gone right? Where have we gone wrong? What kind of things can we look at? Like it's always trying to perfect it. And I think, uh, you know how it is if you love something like it's, it's unbelievable. So I think for guys that are out there like minor hockey coaches too, sometimes you, you forget, you got to spend time with your, your staff and your assistants or, or talk with your parents and so on and so forth. So I think the number one thing is just communication. I think you read any book in the world that everyone always talks about it is communication. So, um, and the only way to get better at that is to continue to talk. So, yeah. And be willing to have, you know, the tough conversations too. I think, uh, I feel like almost every like disagreement I've ever been in or every conflict is always like the, the root cause of it is just miscommunication or lack of commun communication or lack of transparency where somebody's got an angle, <laughs> you know, and, and it's not just like a kind of honest back and forth. Um, you know, in, in terms of your relationships, like I'm really interested now in, in you talking about your coaching staff and your scouts and, and just, you know, everybody that makes the bus go like, 
how do you go about those conversations in time of conflict? Because you have to have healthy conflict to get better. You have to be pushed outside your comfort zone, even yourself as the quote unquote boss, the head coach or your GM or the owner, you know, like you got to be pushed. So how do you create an environment where people feel safe to, you know, to push and to create some of that conflict? I think you got to create the platform where you have conversation. It's funny that is this past year, like I thought myself as a coach, if I'm being honest with you, like I thought I was too short fused when guys would bring stuff up. And at the end of the year, you go through, you take some time off, you go through your evaluations, your staff, staff feedback, and you get the feedback from your assistants and you go back and forth. And I think uh, being humble. And again, if it's about the kids, then what it shouldn't be my idea versus your idea. It should be the best idea. So one good example that I struggle with all the time is when we get an offensive zone play, our D coach, like Jared Nightingale loves the D the D strongs or when it banks off the wall and you hammer it towards the net. And I fight him on it because I think that is a function. There is a time for that numbers at the net. You got a lane, but I'm more inclined to want to swing the puck, have our weeks idea, attack downhill, get into chaos. So we go back and forth on that. And you know what nighty challenges me, why we should do it and it's completely different than my philosophy but i think trying to find the perfect mix is just having a conversation and um again as a head coach you got to get out of your own way sometimes i I, i'm learning that i'm not great at it because i'm so firm in my ideas but i'm i know i i'm trying to find the best version of myself and the best version for our team for our players for our development it's not about me being like these are my ideas we're winning these games because of me it's they're our ideas they're the best idea we believe it's best for our group and for our development so i just think uh, it's it's funny because a younger coach or early even my first year as a head coach you're you're very uh not insecure but you're very like pounding the table to be like it's my way like you guys gotta follow me and what you realize is like it shouldn't be that power struggle if you're really confident in what you're doing and you believe in what you're doing and your sole mission if it is truly to develop players then best idea should win out so i still battle that today there's times they bring stuff to me and i just don't want to hear it and then there's i'll go back a day later and be like you know what let's talk about this further like if your soul sold on it then then tell me why sell me on it or i have to really think about like is this a great idea and you know another one was our power play last year it struggled we had unbelievable talent we finished 16th and we probably finished 16th because i was trying to get on our power play coach too much of what I wanted and at the end of the day it wasn't great so but you step back and you evaluate that and it's like you just you're trying to learn as a coach like hey what's the best idea I've hired a guy to do a job he's working his you know his tail off on watching power plays develop the power play like give him let him do his thing trust him and support him and don't try to when it goes south don't jump in so quick like help him just like you help your players so um i'm learning that like i'm you know what i'm 38 i'm still a young coach and i haven't had 15 years of head coaching experience like i'm learning as i go but uh i think you got self-evaluation and that feedback loop is huge for it yeah well i know why you have your short fuse vex he's got two girls three and one just like i do so (laughs) (laughs) fuse fuse gets a little bit uh a little bit shorter when it comes out but that's i mean it's like i think this is such a valuable conversation such an awesome conversation to have because like you know for me at the higher levels anyway i've never been the head coach i've always been the assistant coach and i know the times where i feel like the head coach has the trust in me to do my job and i know the times when the head coach i feel like he doesn't trust in me to do my job when he starts stepping on my toes And then, you know, when you talk about relationships, I feel like that's the easiest way to lose trust in the people that work for you is to not trust them. And Mm -hmm. uh, that can be very, very hard as a leader, especially when you don't agree. But, uh, you know, that's 
that's the beauty. And that's why coaching is an art. It's not a science, you know, especially when you're dealing with people. And so like taking your experiences because you've coached under some, some pretty, you know, big coaches, you talk about Trevor Latowski, talk about the freaking big man, Darian Hatcher there in Sarnia and stuff, <laughs> you know, you've coached for some, some pretty notable people. Like how do you take your experiences as an assistant um, and, and kind of carry that over to how you want to be as a head coach, because I feel like you learn so much as an assistant coach. And then when you finally get those shoes and you got to be a head coach now, it's just like all the things that you learn now you're tested on it, <laughs> and oh, yeah. you know? So how, how have you, how have you used that experience as an assistant to kind of shape who you want to be? Yeah. Like I tried the things that I loved about working for other coaches. I try to make sure that I, I, allow that with my st- and the things I didn't like, you try to make sure you figure out why you didn't like and what can you do different as a head coach. But it's, you have all these great ideas as an assistant and I know you're sitting there and you know, you're following the head coach's lead at times and there's not everything you agree with, but you go, you know, you do have those conversations and whether, you know, sometimes the coach, the head coach wants to do his thing and you don't always agree with it. And you think, well, when I get my job, there's things I'm going to do different. <laughs> but when you sit in that head coaching chair, boy, is it different? Cause yeah. it's real. It's, I still remember my first game in North Bay. So I got hired mid season. I had one practice and then we're on a, a road trip up North for three and four. So we're in North Bay and I've never been nervous about coaching in my entire life. Like it, to me, it's not, it's the most comfortable thing for me to do is be in the meetings and be on the bench. It's like, that's when life makes most sense for me. But for whatever reason, my first game as a head coach in this league and I was head coach in junior and minor hockey before I was so, uh, just like so unconfident of my abilities and fear and man, this is real. Like I I'm feeding my family for the first true time. I'm feeding my family as a head coach. And now I'm, I'm the head coach. And if things don't go well, I'm out of a job. Like that all starts to sink in. And I remember texting my wife and she's like, look, you've, this is all, you know, this is who you are. Like, just do your thing. You'll be fine. And, um, it, what you realize there and the coaches that will sit in a high level for the first time is like, you have to trust your abilities, be who you are, you know, just, act natural and for me it's the first ever time where I was nervous so you talk about what did you take from other coaches like you know Lutz was unbelievable guy with his staff developing staff and so patient and when things weren't going well didn't scream at the team like really leadership material and Hatch was the same way like I got to run the penalty kill in Sarnia under Hatch it was the number one PK in the league but he never he never did what I did last year and jumped in the way of the power play he always just supported he had a way about him when he would start a conversation with you that he wanted to hear your thoughts and he would kind of direct the conversation where he wanted it to go to make you see his point without being so challenging that you got your back up right away and Hatch is like he's such a good man he has a really interesting way about him and leader through and through like i'm not surprised when you look at that dallas roster and he's the captain of that team you just see who he is as a person but he had a way with his staff of building like you said that trust giving you rope to do whatever you need and just supporting you and when the pk even though it finished top in the league there was a stretch it wasn't great he didn't he wasn't all over me he's you need anything from me i'm seeing this what do you think this reminds me of a time in my pro career and this is how we got through it just supported you and allowed you to grow as a coach and i think Sometimes I got to remind myself of that story because I do get in the way of my, my own staff at times. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was on the PK for my Stanley cup winning team in 1998 <laughs> in Dallas. And uh, you know, maybe we have some suggestions under Quentin Hitchcock who, you know, runs the PK for team Canada and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's funny. But go, going back to kind of like tying this all together to what we did before, like, you know, just in talking to NAR and, and Vex, you know, um, Chris and, and NAR are really tight. You know, they do a lot of stuff together. 
together. And, and so, uh, you know, we said we'd, we'd barb here, barb Nar here a little bit on this podcast. I already uh, like him. If he's tight with Nar, I already like him. <laughs> <laughs> um, best. but you know, one of the things that we were talking about the other day, we were, we were talking, he said, you know, one of the things that he really respects out of you, cause he worked with you in Saginaw there for a bit is like, you know, and again, it goes back to the development versus the winning, but like, how did you become confident enough as a coach to really walk the walk with how you wanted your team to play? Cause you know, I've, I've listened to so many people talk about offensive zone principles. I've heard so many people talk about transition and just like the way that you play from defense to offense, from, you know, the defensive zone into the neutral zone and, and then having a plan and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times like, winning can get in the way of that process of doing it. So, you know, how did you get confident to say, you know what, let's do it this way. We're going to play this way. We're going to develop and then we're going to win because we're developing. Um, how did you get confident in your abilities to do that? Because I feel like a lot of coaches don't have that. Yeah. You know what, at some point, and this is the way I look at it. We're all going to be old men. We're going to be sitting in a rocking chair, reflect, reflecting on our lives and, I know, I knew when I got this job, if I'm going to be unsuccessful or I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose it doing what I believe in. I don't want to just do things the way people are doing. I mean, watch an NHL game and try to mimic an NHL team that I think, you know, I like their style. Or I, I wanted to make sure that I believed in entries and possession and, and skill development and developing the player, you know, small little pieces that lead to your whole, I believe in that. And if I knew, I remember looking myself in the mirror when I did get the job that first night coming home after our first practice and meeting and said, look, like you're going to do this your way. And if you're going to fail, you're going to fail on your face. But if you believe in this as much, and I, I was waiting a long time to get my head coaching job at this level. It was like a 14 year grind to finally become an OHL head coach. And I just knew I finally got the opportunity. I was going to do what I always believed in all those years. So I just, it's like sink or swim. I'm, it's either going to be really great and things are going to go well or we're going to fail. And maybe this job doesn't work out for me and then I'm going to have to reevaluate and move forward. But I think as a coach, like I just, that was my conviction of the way I wanted to do things. And I wanted, it was like a live test, almost like a little playground of like, Hey, you got an opportunity here with a, an actual OHL group to test your theories and we'll see how smart you really are. And so far they've worked out, but you know, there's been a lot, like I'm supported by great people too. It's not just me. I have, I've had great staff, you know, all three years I've been a head coach and guys that bring ideas and do a lot of work and make this thing work. But uh, yeah, it was just, and then talk, you get exposed to guys like Nar and that, and they, you just see their vision as well. And yet it's hard not to believe in it. And, um, you know, watching, to be honest, like I always admire how the Sioux Greyhounds played under Sheldon or Sheldon Keefe and really the first innovator of our league to bring that, you know, possession one three one ozone movement neutral zone possession turn back like make plays not dump pucks philosophy and it was it was really hard to coach against and i just thought that's the way i want to do things so love that and something i was talking about in the gym with one of my uh clients whose son plays in the nhl right now is like thinking how we can move the game forward and it sounds like you're one of those guys and tof and i think have talked about this privately ourselves have you ever thought about bringing in a sports psychologist like listening to kind of how you talk to the team to talk about how the coaches talk with each other, or how the coaches talk to the players or kind of what the players are feeling. The messages are from the coach. If it's kind of, you know, a, a symbiotic relationship, like you were talking about, you're trying to have the head coach and the assistant coaches. It's just something that I think 
in hockey now, we talk so much about how important mental health is and communication, which you've already mentioned and things like that. And I'm surprised that I haven't seen more of that type of line of thinking, bringing in an outside maybe perspective of someone who's really good with communication to be like, hey, you know, like I know you're trying to do this, but like the players are kind of hearing this. Is that something that's ever crossed your mind or something you've tried? Well, that's a great question. So yes, there's, there's a two pronged answer. One, like a, one thing after I run a meeting, I always love grab, grabbing a guy randomly and be like, what was the main point of that meeting? What was the main message? If they can't repeat it, I failed as a coach. So, or we failed as a staff. So I randomly always grab a guy and just quickly ask that. And if they can hammer out with the main one or two points for boom, like that's a good meeting. Now, the other thing I got to do the U 17s this summer, we didn't have the tournament, but I was the head coach of team Canada red. And we had a guy on our staff named Kyle McDonald, who, who's a professor at the university of Regina. He works with the Paralympic team. He does a ton of stuff through hockey Canada works with NHL teams and, um, we were going to bring him on this year for exactly that role. One to be there for the players and, and develop that mental part of the game. Cause you know, there's been a lot of things in Saginaw where we've been in some real tight playoff games or situations where we just mentally, we've had to be stronger and I'm not a mental performance coach. So bring an expert in, but that was the other thing we got talking about is it, it, his idea was to do exactly that. Like, let me evaluate your meetings and, you know, let's see if, you know, our, our guys retaining because what I learned through Rocky Canada was they were really big on teaching us at the coaching conference about how people learn, how kids, particularly the age group we coach, how they retain information, you know, based on the research, what after a meeting, what percentage of a meeting do they retain and how do you make sure you do things after the meeting or the very next day to increase retention levels. So it was really fascinating for me as a coach, because to me, I think it's exactly what maybe you're talking about. It's kind of like the hidden hidden key where you can unlock that next level is if you can get, get to that point where you're evaluating that, not just so much your X's and O's, but your meetings to perfect your meetings. So guys are getting maximum value out of that. And if you have five meetings a week and you maximize those meetings, how much better is your group? So yeah, we've, we've, we've actually looked at that because I think there's a whole different level to coaching. If we can find that kind of be innovators in that way, I think we can get a competitive advantage. For sure. So like one of the things, so I've, I've been watching this, um, Amazon documentary Vex. I was telling you about it. It's all or nothing from these uh, Premier League teams. I don't know if you've seen yes. if you guys have Soccer seen. Ones? Oh, so you've seen them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so best. I just I just finished the one on Manchester City. So I don't know if you saw that one. Yep. Yeah, with Pep. Yeah, exactly. But how about so they had so he literally has one guy that's been on his staff forever that yep. was a water polo player. Knows nothing. Literally knows nothing about soccer, but he's an mm-hmm. awesome guy, and always he's always. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, the nice. hugger. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so he's the guy that he's like the pulse guy, you know, like he's always kind of talking to the players and he's always kind of going around and checking in on guys and seeing how things are, are going. And, and he's kind of the, the go between between the players and, and the coach. And that's his, that's literally his job is just to be the pulse of the locker room. So you can have like direct and, and honest conversation and, and the players are on the same page as the coach and the coaches are on the same page as the player. And mm-hmm. I think there's such a value to that. And it could be, you know, for people that don't have the resources of a freaking Manchester city, who's like a probably yeah. a billion dollar corporation, right? Like it could be an assistant coach maybe, or, you know, something like that, but somebody has got to have a pulse of what's going on. And like one of the things, you know, I do a lot of team building. And so I did it with the NCAA division one team a few years back 
And they were literally in, in last place at the time that I went there. And honestly, people shouldn't do team building at the beginning of the season. You should do to your team building in the middle of the season. Cause I feel like everybody does it just to kind of like do it, to say you did it. it and, and yeah. And it, it, and you know, and it works for maybe a couple weeks or a month and you get your mottos and you get the shit on the back of your shirt and you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, I think the middle of the season is when it's actually the, the best because now you've had your trials and tribulations as, as a team, you've had some ups and downs. There are actually some things that you can talk about that can relate to the second half of the season and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so long story short, so I went in and I did a team. They were in last place um, in their league at the time. And I came in and there was a lot of issues, ton of issues. And all the issues stemmed around what we have talked about this entire time. Communication players just weren't on the same page as the coaches. Coaches were not on the same page page as the players both of them were right both of them were wrong <laughs> depending on you know what the situation was they just needed to get on the same page and so as a former coach I got to go in there and talk to the players then the coaches said we want you to talk to the players without the coaches in the room we want them to be honest with you and and we want to hear the issues and and I, I respect the hell out of those coaches for you know wanting to hear the tough stuff as well right so having the chance to go in there kind of like as that pulse guy they won their league that year because I was able, not me, but like just the situation, whatever, how I was able to talk, like I was able to pull out what the problems were. Okay. Let's talk about what these solutions can be. And then boom, 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 let's implement some stuff. And then let's, let's get going. And they went on like a 12 game win streak and they ended up, uh, you know, almost winning their league and, and coming in first place at the end of the year. And it's just like, it, it all stems from just the pulse you know, having somebody that's maybe not so invested in the X's and O's or so invested as a player in, in my career, because, you know, as a coach, you worry about certain things as a player, you worry about certain things. And sometimes those things get lost in what that relationship should be. So I, you know, just having that evaluative part of your culture, I just think there's so much freaking value to that. So much Vex. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think about like and maybe it's the next frontier, man. Maybe we, maybe we just like crack the Da Vinci Code here, Tove. Uh, we didn't crack it. People are doing it. People no, are I doing know, it. I know. But like, but like, so like, you think about analytics, like that kind of, that came, you know, hockey was you play hockey and like kind of the eye test and then stats, and then all of a sudden analytics is, is this whole other side that nobody had really thought of. Well, like now, you know, even what you said just made me start thinking, like, I know I need to watch that show. You told me I got to watch it, but like maybe bringing in a high level athlete from another sport, like just to kind of come in, he doesn't even need to be a psychologist, maybe a retired ex athlete from a different sport, sit in the locker room, listen, kind of, you know, you be the eyes and ears. What are you hearing? You know, what are you, are you, are you getting the same message that I'm trying to give as the coach? Like that might just be a good idea and not even needing to hire a psychologist. So we're kind of thinking outside the box as more of how can we get our communication better? How can we get, you know, the flow and the energy of the locker room to be where I want it to be as a coach and bringing in an outside voice, outside thinking that might be, you know, something very simple that could help the coaching staff. Like, I think this is a really cool conversation. That's all we have here on the Hockey Think Tank podcast, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> we try. Um, now, I just think, you know, the the player relationship-based piece of coaching is just, it's... <laughs> well, I love Chris saying that he grabs a guy. Like, yeah, never thought to do that. Unbelievable. I mean, I think any younger coach, if you're, if you're watching or listening right now, like that is such a great idea to do because 
you know, we know how some young guys are. They're going to be, you know, looking at the ceiling. They're not paying attention. Well, now they know I, I have to listen to what coach is saying kind of, and, and it's going to force them to, to, to be responsible. You know, I mean, I've seen it at the 16s. I've coached 16s and 18s. And, you know, sometimes you see the guys doze off and I was the assistant coach and I'd be losing my mind because I'd be like, my God, I was always taught, like, look at your coach, look him in the eye when he's saying something. Like, I want to know what he's saying because it's going to make me better or he's going to like me more if I do what he asks, so I'll play more. So, like, Chris, I think that's a genius idea. You ever had any guys go, uh... <laughs> Lots. And, I, and you know what? So there's there's two, like... One, if they go like that, I never put it back on the player. Like, it's me. It's us. It's our meeting. Was it too long? Was it just, like, had zero point? Was having a meeting for the sake of a meeting? Was it, did we engage the group enough? You know, what I've learned from Hockey Canada, and we started doing a little bit last year as well, is meet small groups. Like, not a lot of people want to talk when the room's full of 20 players. Even though they're, they're a team and they're together all the time, there's just, it's intimidating. You put a group of four together, or do a group of five in a meeting, and the conversations that start to develop because guys aren't afraid to speak in a small group. And if you keep those pods together throughout the year, those four or five guys constantly, it becomes so comfortable for that group to start talking. So whether it's a line or a group of forwards, or maybe it's all the wingers, they get to the point where you've, you know, you've had in a month, 15 meetings, we'll have sat together for 15 different times for five, six minutes at a time. Like they're not afraid to speak up and it, it becomes the point where you just sort of clip up and then boom, they're, they're teaching themselves. They're talking. That's the true development. You're almost out of the way. So we're going to do a lot more of that stuff. Um, this coming year when we do get playing with, with Saginaw, I was like, how can we do maybe a little more meetings or breaking it up where we're each in control of a pod and, and we're creating conversations because you guys know how it is when you're actually discussing or going back and forth or trying to show something to players, you learn more. So if we can get our group to do it. They're teaching themselves more. And I think, yeah, you lead the conversation as a coach, you jump in, but it really, it's just has to, if you can make it all about them and, and find innovative ways based on all the research that's out there, it's amazing the amount of little things that you can do to your group that just make your group better without you really having to do anything. It's so old school right now for a coach to come up, stand in front of players, talk to players, leave the room is uh, to me, that's outdated. And I've, I'm guilty. Like we do it a ton at Saginaw, but so how can we change that where these guys are like actually exciting about going to the meeting? Cause they know they're going to get to talk. Nobody wants to sit there like this for eight minutes and they're telling you everything and you leave. It's like, that ah, was boring. You know? So when guys do that, I put it on myself and I think, you know, kids, to your point, when kids are shifty like that with their eyes, what, what we learned this year at Hockey Canada is the group that's coming up now, they're so used to being on their phones that they never want to make eye contact with you, but they listen to everything you say. So what happens now is coaches like us, and I'm guilty of it too, I get so rattled at a player that can't look at me, but kids these days, they're, that's just the way they are. They have trouble making eye contact because they never have to do it. All their conversations are through this. So making eye contact is extremely uncomfortable for them. It's actually the worst thing for them to do. Letting them just kind of go like this and as you talk, they're actually listening to everything. You'll be amazed if you tell a kid when you're talking to him, even though he's looking around and say, hey, can you repeat what I said? It's like, boom, yeah. But if they have to stare at you, they're not listening because they're more nervous about looking at you in the eye. So we had these big time psychologists from different sports, the guys that work with the All Blacks and all these different sports come in and present to the coach. And that was some of the stuff that they found through their research with kids coming up. You just can't, you can't get upset about that because that's how they are. So it was interesting. Good to use that with my three-year-old tonight as I was putting her to bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, I, I love that. That's, oh my God, that's awesome stuff too. Because like, I feel like what you're talking about creates ownership for the players. And when they, mm -hmm. when they feel like they have ownership and a say in what's going on, 
they're so much more apt to buy in to, to what, like if they feel like they're the ones that are kind of leading the charge, you know, even though you're leading the charge as a coach, but they feel that they're, they have ownership and it's just the buy-in that's created is, is so much larger. And I just, I love that idea of just meeting with pods and stuff. I've never actually heard that before. You know, I think typically, and again, probably outdated now, most coaches will meet with like a quote unquote leadership group, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the older guys, or maybe you put a couple younger guys in there, whatever. That's kind of like the standard for what people do. We'll have a leadership group. We'll meet once a week. Sometimes it'll be a five second discussion. Hey, how's everything going? Good. Great. Go, go get ready for practice. Sometimes it's a little bit deeper, but you know, getting, getting other players, you know, that maybe aren't the leaders, but have a good, again, pulse, weird word, but whatever of the locker room, like just being able to have every guy speak and, and get them involved in creating that ownership. And and then, you know, as a, as a coach, the more information you get, the better you're able to handle the players too. So um, I love that idea. Have you found, did you say you've done that already? Or is that something you wanted to do? Sorry. Which, which where yeah, was we near the tail end of the year, we started doing a little bit more of a small, small group stuff, but it's something that when we get going again, is going to be an absolute staple. Yeah. Even when we're running practice, like think about being at the board. So you got all the players at the board, you draw a drill. What we're going to do this year is we're going to have Nighty has all the D all say, have the centerman, our other coach will have the winger. So we have three, when we bring the guys to the board, we have three little groups separate. Each coach explains the drill, but as soon as you're done explaining the drill, so the drill will be quick. Here's the drill that we're doing. If I'm working with the centerman, I'm talking about all the center habits in the drill we're evaluating on. The other coach is talking about all the winger habits, the D coach, all the D habits. So now instead of having everybody at the board and trying to cover everything, you can quickly rip off the drill. Hey, we're doing, you know, we're doing the newsy entry centerman these are your three key points of the newsy the newsy yeah. entry oh <laughs> well, we put a bunch of twists we could put a bunch of twists on a drill that we call that newsy drill but to me like it's the same thing there so you can maximize you can maximize your development in a practice because now the centermen know like they hear the drill and they've got three things they got to focus on in the drill it could be you know off a center out or a stick detail or shoulder check or where you are based on the puck and that's the wingers are getting their thing the deer getting theirs now your group when you bring them to the board, you actually have value to bring them to the board because they're going to quickly get reminded of the three things in the drill that they need that are going to lead to their skill development and lead to our style of play. So we're trying to get outside the box with stuff like that. Like what can you do different than what's always been done before? I love that. And it's also kind of going back to what we were talking about before it's development for your, your assistant coaches. And so, you know, making your coaches better at the end of the day are going to make your players better too, because the better the coaches are, the more they're going to be able to develop them. So I love that. It's great. I agree. You got to develop your coaches for sure. <laughs> and and I, I'm like that too. Like, you know, it is everyone, you get so intense about coaching. Like you want to do everything and you, you sometimes, again, you get in your own way. Like you got to let them have a voice, let them take, you know, time at the board. Cause they, at the end of the day, they're qualified. Like, yeah, I'm the head coach, but you can easily slide one of those guys in, let them develop and they're going to do a great job with the group as well. So um, again, like you're only going to have success if you have good people. And I think you just, you got to get out of your own way as a head coach. And I'm, the most guilty of that <laughs> we all are dude <laughs> it's not everybody um so let me ask you this i, I want to pivot a little bit here because getting the chance to coach in the ohl you're obviously coaching some some pretty special players and get to coach the high end of the high end like you've coached philip Peronic, who's probably the number one defenseman on detroit right now uh coach cole perfetti the last couple of years who was a top 10 nhl draft pick last year played on the canadian world junior team um how do you go about coaching those guys? And I always feel like you have to be able to get the most out of your top guys to, to have success at, uh, at the higher levels. So 
how do you go about kind of your relationship building with guys like that to, to get the most out of them? Like these are the best of the best in the world. Well, they want to be held accountable for sure. I think, I think Mike Babcock said it one time in an interview and he was talking about one of his assistant coaches and his assistant coach would only ever correct kind of the mid-level guys in the team. He would never correct the all-star. He's like, you're afraid to coach those guys. I think holding those guys accountable and, and really, uh, you know, they enjoy that. I know from my experience with some of the elite guys that we've coached, even when I was in Saturday, we had Chikrin and we had Konechny and, you know, Jordan Cairo and Pavel Zaka and we had Tony D, like D'Angelo. We had a lot of guys come through, but they got to hold them accountable. But two, you've got to engage them in a completely different way where I know a guy using Perfetti, for example, or we got, you know, Ryan says, we have a million guys in Saginaw that I classify as kind of elite players, but when you talk to them, to me, like Cole teaches me, I look at this entry clip and I'll say, well, here's what I think when I see the clip and what do you, what were you thinking? What do you see? And he instantly breaks it down. And then he points out three or four things that I hadn't even thought of. And I'm like, Holy, that just, that's unbelievable. So now he's got my brain going and we start going on a conversation. And next thing you know, like you're developing as a coach. So these guys are smart. Like these players, like you said, they want to have ownership of what they're doing and they want to be engaged. I think anybody in any job nowadays, you read anything on companies and employment and the kind of human resource aspect of businesses, people want to have input in their job. <clears throat> they want to have ownership of what they're doing. It has to be meaningful work. So these guys here, like I can't go to the rink, you know, 280 pounds and never played a good day in the OHL and say, Cole Perfetti, you're doing it this way. Like he's going to look at you and be like, what are you talking about? Like if you go at him and say, Cole, like I really believe in, if we can do it, this, these are the reasons why, like, what do you think he'll come back? And I'm like, man, that's interesting. Like, so then you get in a conversation and you start at one point where you think this is how we're doing things. And you end up way over here. And it's like, yeah, that's how we're going to do it. So I think, and then what happens is now Cole Perfetti wants to have more conversations, Ryan Suzuki, Mason Millman, Damian Drew, they want to come in and have more conversations with you because they know you listen and they have their, 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 what they say is actually valued and taken, you know, into account and applied. And I think, uh, you know, if you can get that between player and coach where guys actually want to come talk to you because they know there's going to be value in the conversation, your team's going to get better. And what happens is they go into the room and everyone always says the meeting after the meeting. Well, if they go into the room, if you've just done a meeting, so you've had the conversation with the player, you go and you do have a meeting and you talk about some of the points that you've talked with that player and you're presenting it to the team. Well, when they go into the locker room, the best players always have generally always have the biggest voice. Well, they're going to hold guys accountable for those points because really that's their points. So it's kind of like getting your team to do what you want because they're going to go into the room after and guys are going to be making sure they're doing whatever was just presented on because really it's their idea. So, and the idea is generally players that you coach, even in minor hockey, like they're just smarter than us. When you're, you know, how it is, when you're playing the game, you feel the pressure, you feel what's open when you're going against a certain deal night, like you start to learn little habits, you're picking up stuff that I can't, get from the bench because I'm not experiencing it. So if you're not getting that feedback from the players and you're not, you're doing them a disservice to your group and to that player. So again, it comes back to conversations and communication. Kind of reminds me, we had Patrick O'Sullivan on the podcast. I don't even know time with this year anymore with COVID year, but uh, he said like, it's funny how is <clears throat> in the NHL, especially like the smartest person in the room, hockey wise is probably the superstar on that NHL team. You know, he's probably like, very, very good. He probably has a super hockey IQ, but the coaches in the past never really talked to them, never got their opinion, never got what they're seeing. It's kind of the guy in the bench who hasn't been playing for a while, always kind of pushing his agenda. So um, I think that's super, you know, a super smart of you. And another like kind of 
way of looking through it from like a psychological lens at how you're coaching your team. And I think that's, that's such forward thinking. I'm not trying to just pump your tires here, but uh, you know, I, I love the way that you're doing that and like looking at it's kind of through that lens. Yeah. We had belt, we had Daryl Belfry on a couple of weeks ago too. And uh, he was talking about something similar where he calls it co-teaching co-teaching is, is everything. And it's the relationship that you build with the conversations that you have with the players individually. And as a team where, you know, you can take so much and learn so much from the guys that are in the heat of the battle, like you're saying, um, cause it is, it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to coach from the bench. It's even easier to coach from the press box. And when you get down there and you're in the heat of it, you know, and making split second decisions, I think parents might want to, you know, uh, learn a little bit about that too, <laughs> at least some of them, but, um, just the, those conversations. So like, like, can you give us maybe an example or two, like Cole Perfetti for me, like when I watch that kid play, it's unreal, like just oozes smarts. So, so, so good. So like, what are some, you know, conversations that you've had with him? Maybe what are some of the things that you've, you've learned from him from having the ability to coach him over the last couple of years? Yeah. A lot of it, like, uh, for him, like really off the entries, you know, one cool thing I remember watching him, he was skating through the neutral zone. He just happened to be, we're in a game and he's skating, skating towards our bench through the neutral zone. And I'm looking at his eyes and his eyes are going left, right, left, right, left, right, real quick. And I'm like, Holy shit. Like he's looking to see, he's just waiting for somebody to come at him so he can just cut those feet and get in behind him, create time and space. Like, Next, because I remember talking to him about that. He's like, yeah, I'm just looking to see what D is going to jump me. As soon as he does, I'm going to make my move and go from there. So he's like controlling his skating and slowing down and kind of messing with coverage, saying like, "Who who's coming? Like, I know one of you guys are going to come get me at some point. When you do, I'm going to roast you. And he does all the time. Like, it's unbelievable. He's he's so uh, slows the game down and controls it, but he baits guys in and, you know, just like controlling feet and sticks and uh he's just so elite like that off entries and ozp some of the stuff he sees and even on power plays you know different reads he's making and he's it's it's unbelievable like because like you know like for me i mean i'm coming in in the game and you're like you're coming through the neutrals like i got the puck in the middle this is great and all of a sudden boom someone's on top of you like those elite guys just they are so smart in the moment at a high rate of speed it's like everything is slow motion for them and they know what's coming it's it's like a predictable situation where they're going to break down the play and um he's unbelievable like he it just things like that and you know even in practice some of the drills we do it's like well what do you think of the drill and he's like well you know it's applicable or not and this is why and you really when you just listen to his he's just so smart like and he's a hockey nerd like he watches hockey and he comes in and he points out little things in tape where you're like oh man like so elite and i didn't see that it's just yeah it's just <laughs> crazy like it's really he's everyone's like yeah he's amazing off the rush what they don't realize about cole is when he's getting the puck and coming over our blue line he's already setting up what he's going to do on the entry so early in the play like he just knows this is what i'm doing this is how i'm going to set it up and he can manipulate the game in his own way and it's uh man it's just so cool to see and talk to a player like that because it's it's like he's special. Like not everybody has that ability to think like that. What makes him that player? And uh, you, you just learn a lot because it gets your brain going. Same when you talk with guys like Nar. Like you, you start on this topic and you get fifty ideas out of it. And you're like, Nar, excited no. and <laughs> you're all fired up. And how do you apply this? And that's Cole Perfetti, man. He loves the game of hockey, and he's he's a perfectionist at his craft, and he's got a real strong desire to be the best. And yeah, he's just. Uh, the way he breaks down his offense is it's cool. 
That's really cool. Well, one of the, I want to ask you a hockey question now because you brought something up in, in what he was talking about on the entry in terms of like waiting for that D to jump and then making his move from there. And Jeff and I have talked about this on the podcast numerous times. Like I feel like kind of like common talk in hockey today is it's all got to be fast, 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 fast. You got to do everything fast. And there's certainly a time and a place for fast, but we also talk about, okay, how do you create time and space? And sometimes creating time and space is maybe not playing fast and bringing somebody to you and showing some poise. So you get people to go with you so you can create time and space for somebody else when you pass it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you talk about with your players? Is that something in some of your principles in terms of maybe the entries or, or even the ozone play um, that you talk about with the guys? Constantly. We work on entries every day. We work on OZP every day, but we show a ton of video on how do you create spacing? How can you get separation? What are your habits? Is it controlled skating? Is it attacking a weak side D? Is it attacking a weak side D coming back to the original D like there's a million things that we look at situations. Like what I would say is watch a game tonight and on every entry where there's a dumped puck, if you pause it almost every time, even the NHL, there's a play to possession to be made. Maybe it's not a hundred percent just dumping it in because it's well the blue line. And like, you know, the guy's got a good gap. Like how do you create a play off of that? And to me, that is what we work on. So we get our guys comfortable, like, you know, even though a D, a D will be defending you and he's like, he thinks he has a good gap, but really there's like a two foot, foot and a half space. Take one hard step, like you're going to drive wide, cut east-west, get on the inside of a stick, and then it's game on because he's screwed. He's on the outside. He's just trying to catch up to you. Now that weak side D staring at you, you've got a guy coming downhill. He should have another guy. And we always have a fourth and a lot of times a fifth coming. Pick your poison. Now we know where guys are based on our routing. We've done enough to grab a line and get right away off the wall. And now it's like we have so many options and we develop it to our guys. Now we're deadly off the rush. So a lot of guys would see is like, oh, the D's got a pretty good gap, a good stick. Like that's a chip situation. We're like, that's a hard step. Look like you're going to chip, maybe open your blade, touch it real quick to space, get to the inside and play. And we work on our skills for that and our entries and our drills and everything is based around that. And yeah, we play fast in the neutral zone. We'll quick up every puck if we can. If not, we go into build it's but off of a quick up, it's not D to D up or D up chipping in. It's make a play. And how can you play fast and then play slow right after? So how can you make one quick play to get fast and how can you slow it down? So everybody's over tracking, got track back to the house. Perfect track back. We're going to get to the middle of the ice. We're going to have guys moving everywhere. We have, it looks like we don't know what we're doing. We break down 10 clips. You see specific routing. It's like, it's a chaos with a purpose, but we develop that in our group. Guys on the bench, when the game gets tight, you always hear our players on the bench. And Damian Drew, who I love, is always, boys, we got to get more pucks deep. And I'll yell, fuck off, G, you got to make more plays. Is that, is that the guy whose dad is a AHL coach in Syracuse? No. Different no, Drew. He, okay. Yeah. Got it. This, but or it's cruel. No, it's a different, completely he's, different He's name. cruel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I yell at him and say, no, man, like you got to make more plays. Like this is the time now where – Teams are nervous, game's tight, everyone's tracking so hard to the house, expose that. Understand what they're doing, expose that. Get in the zone, create chaos, and now get switches. Now the game's tight and everybody's panicking. You get duplication, find the open guy, boom, game over. So dumping a puck in, just probably going to put it hard. If you can't get the four-check recovery, you're just giving that team an opportunity to line rush right back at you. Why do it? And our version of a dump, we dump pucks. I'm trying to get to the point, in a perfect game, we'd have zero dumps. You're going to have dumps. It's impossible, guys, just do it. Our version of a jump uh, dump is we have such a good strong side dot driver is we just lay it to the face off dot almost 
every time analytically, if you lay it to a dot and you have a dot driver going to the dot, that weak side D is never going to be on the offensive side of that. You're getting first touch every time. So if you're going to give a puck up, make it a play to possession like that, but where you got to develop your players, the guy coming through the strong side dot, how can you build him with three or four elite skills that when he gets first touch on that puck, he's not just touching it to the corner, basically continuing the dump. He's making a delay, a double cut, a low high, like whatever. He's making a play off of that that's going to lead to offense while they're coming back and worrying about tracking to their positions like they would do in a practice five and everybody come back track we're playing fast within our entry we know that if we can get that play he's getting first touch we go low high swing that puck and then attack downhill with guys completing their routes we're into a one three one like that they're trying to sort and we're just creating chaos so we work on that every day we show a ton of video and we work on it multiple times every day through drills and we build up our skill sessions to give those guys that skill so we can play that way and i think that's really hard to play against because you got teams that are never dumping puck and you get teams that every time you do do a good gap or laying pucks to possession now you got to defend off of that she's hard (laughs) ew so that was awesome. <laughs> so let me ask you this because I, I love that. Was it chaos with a purpose? Is that what you said? Chaos yeah, it's with like a purpose. Chaos with a purpose and structured chaos. Like it looks like we're, we're not like yeah, we want to be the we want to be a team that has the most motion in the league. But I also believe there's a point of like freedom of motion, and then there's motion where we call it like filling space. If you know, like a one three one, you got to fill your space and we you know there's freedom where if i'm skating at you with a puck i can either come towards you and create a switch or it's like we're attached to a string i can skate down the space and we can start messing with guys but we're moving all over the place and when we get in the offensive zone like you're not a d you're not a forward you're a piece of our one three one structure you've got to fill a space you've got to lose the mindset of i'm a d i gotta stay on the blue line like no if you're a flank guy run your flanks. If you're net front bumper or top guy, do your position and create as many switches as possible. But as you're creating those switches and we teach our guys as you're doing switches, you should know where to look on the ice to see if there's duplication, where the next play should be. So you can play fast and boom, create a gray out of it, a great day out of it. So part of it is like your structure. Part of it is teaching guys. Like this is where I think you can teach hockey sense is when you're doing that switch, teach them that they do the switch, but get them to start recognizing with their brain where that next play for a great day should happen if there's a breakdown and then if there's not a breakdown, don't just throw the puck away or jam it. How can you get guys to stay comfortable with carrying the puck and do cutbacks or create other switches and so on and so forth. So, but really at the end of the day, you have to give your players permission. If they don't have permission to play that way, they're never going to do it. And then everything you do in practice better be centered around to that identity because it's a constant developmental process. Yeah. So how do you get there in a practice? (coughs) That's the, the question I have for you. So like, you know, I, I struggle a little bit with this because you want to progress to that. So maybe you do some five on O type stuff or you do some three on O type stuff, whatever it may be, and then maybe progress to defenseman, two defenseman, five on five, whatever. Um, on the, Let's just take entries, for example. You know, when you're talking about entries and your routes and, and ways of people, like how much structure do you give them and how do you progress to get to where you basically want the guys to get to? Because you know, every play is different, you know, you can't like, and I struggle with this as a coach. Cause sometimes it's like, all right, now on this drill, I want to see everybody cut to the middle. Once you get over the blue line, when there's a bad gap, but maybe there's a different, maybe the gap is better, you know, at that time. So that's not the play. So like, how do you kind of get it to where you're getting that chaos with a purpose where the guys know what the structure is, but also know that when there's a play to be made, there's a play to be made. Maybe if it's outside the structure, I don't know if I'm making sense at the question, but how do you, how do you get, how do you get the progression to where they're learning how to play in that system? 
Well, yeah, like there's some structured, we call it route completion. There's certain areas we want to go to, but at the same time, it's the same thing. Like there's going to be situations, guys, where it's like ad lib. We're just playing. We are, you know, something that we thought was going to happen didn't happen or a guy didn't go where he, where he's supposed to. You've got to find a way to protect a puck, make a play. Like you have freedom to do whatever you want. So I think that's one part of it. It's like you can do whatever you want. This is how it's best going to create offense because within our structure, we can play fast. We know where our options are. We know if I slip into the strong side dot driver where his next play is, where guys should be completing routes. So if I'm under pressure, where can I put a puck? If I delay, like where, where are guys going? We know within our structure how we're playing fast. But I think like, again, you put them in those situations every day. Some of them are with no, so you start them off with the skills, like work on all the skills for entry, getting forwards to drive at a defender and then one foot cut to the wall and drag them with you, extend your hands and like slip it through them for entry. How do you, you know, tap at the space and, and get on the inside, like all these little skills through the neutral zone, like your skating patterns that set you up for the entry instead of just going in a straight line and skating fast like get off the wall maybe dragging the mid like sometimes you know you have no play and the track's coming so i know i probably can't get to the weak side d but how do i skate towards that tracker and bring that d with me so when i start delaying to the wall i'm creating these little bubbles of space that as he closes i we call it hunt the triangle he closes find the triangle on his body and just lay it to an area where the driver's coming through like all those little things, I think like offensive zone play, one drill we do this year, I'm going to experiment with it is one of the ones I thought of the other day is like, how can you create a ton of movement and chaos and get fill space and get all these things? If it's really hard to develop like organically. So like it's, if it's five on O and you got one puck, well, what if you had three pucks moving? So if a guy's holding a puck and skating towards you, he's got to be aware of another puck, but he also has to be able to fill space and move. And so you're tracking multiple pucks and multiple movement patterns within your structure. Like, is that going to develop our brains? Can we then kick a puck out, maybe add one or two random guys that just apply pressure all over while two pucks are moving. So we got to keep our ozone principles. We've got multiple pucks we got to follow, but I also got multiple movement patterns. I got to track and I got to incorporate like good stick detail, all the little skills that go with it. So you start building it up like that. And at the end of the day, you have to put them in situations where you want to be a good entry team or good ozone team. The best teacher of that is through their experience of failing and having success in a game. So as a coach, like if you want to play that way, there's going to be some nights where it's just painful. And early on, it's going to be painful. But they get to the point where they experience failure so much trying to make those plays that they weren't, they learn what works and what doesn't. And now what you see almost overnight, your system's kind of like, eh, it's been okay doing that. And then it explodes and you're like, man, we're amazing at it. But they're learning. And as a coach, you got to be comfortable on the bench when some stupid play happens. You're like, oh, man, but you work with the player. He recognizes his mistake. Next time he goes out, he's not going to do it. So it's a multiple of things, man, like live experience, putting them in situations in practice, getting outside the box with how you develop it, filming your practice when you are working on those things and looking at certain clips that are really great examples, like showing them doing it right. So they want to do it more. And it's a lot, but it's like a continual hunt every day. Like we won't do some drill just for the sake of doing a drill because it's like, we never work on one-on-ones for an example. Like we'll never just do a straight one-on-one. I just think, one-on-ones happen all over the ice they get that but when a guy like skates from top of the circle versus a d like i don't see value in that if i'm going to do a one-on-one it's going to be a tight small area like work on protection work on manipulating feet and trying to get through a guy there we will always do some sort of 
rush thing that has multiple people because it's it's guys working together to solve problems so i think you just have to create whatever identity you want to do create an environment every day that everything you do is centered around that if it doesn't fit into what you're doing don't do it why do it stupid it makes no sense we want to be best at xyz why would we do something that makes us good at abc it's dumb like find your identity continually be unbelievable at it and and I think, like, again, like Sheldon Keefe told me this, to be honest, when I got hired, I called him. He was in the Sioux. It was the last thing he ever said to me was, because he did the same thing in the Sioux I wanted to do in Saginaw. And he said, the last thing you have to do, he goes, last, you have to give your players permission to make plays and mistakes. And you can, as a coach, say, we're going to be an off-the-rush team. They make one bad play and you're barking at them. Ah, you can't do that. Just dump it in. They're stupid. Don't, like, it's, it's just, it's such a continual process, man. There's going to be nights where you just want to, lose your mind, but it's like, you got to remind yourself some of those times, those nights where it goes south, best nights ever. Cause they're learning through mistakes. They're not going to have two bad nights in a row. And generally that's the truth. So true. It's so true. And, and uh, you know, it's funny to hear you say that at the higher levels because you know, youth coaches, they, they battle that all the time. <laughs> you know, I think you talk to a lot of different youth coaches and they, for whatever reason, they feel a lot of pressure and they want to win and, and all that kind of stuff, but the winning will come at some point if you're doing things the right way. And and you talked about, I think you said the word identity like six times in, in the last 10, 15 minutes. And it's so true. Like if you're a team that has an identity and plays towards that identity, if talent is equal is going to win nine out of 10 times <laughs> uh, against sure. a team that doesn't. And uh, so like, I love what you said about everything that you do and, and everything in practice has to go towards that identity and players knowing that. And uh, it's just, it's, it's funny. Like I, I had an experience, I coached uh, some 17 and 18 year olds this year. And, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to work on with them was gaps, 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 mm-hmm. gaps, gaps. Cause in the first, I didn't know many of the kids in the first, you know, a bunch of practices, the D they were like a little hesitant. To, to gap up because they didn't want to get beat and we went oh and four in our first four games because it was like no like make the mistake like get burned mm-hmm. right now it's okay like don't worry about it just like it's fine and we let up a shitload of goals <laughs> it wasn't pretty but then like our next three games we had two shutouts and a lot of it was because like they had the confidence and it wasn't me giving them confidence it was just putting them in situations where you know they were getting beat maybe four out of 10 times. And now in practices, they're getting beat three out of 10 times and then two out of 10 times because they're figuring it out and they're figuring it out and they're figuring it out. And I just, I I love to hear you at your level say that like, Hey, like we have to be okay, you know, play in the right way, but that's going to be tough at times. (laughs) It's going to be tough at times to do that. And you have to have the confidence as a coach. And I'm sure you have an awesome owner and an awesome GM too, that allows you to do that because it comes from the top, just like with youth coaches, with the parents, (laughs) you know, you got to be comfortable enough to say, Hey, we're going to lose a few games here and don't fricking, you know, go jumping off a bridge if we're, we're not the top 10 in the country at this time at the older levels, you have to have owners and people above you that allow you to coach the way that you want to coach too. And uh, is that something that you guys have? You wouldn't say otherwise, but <laughs> is that something that, that you have there in Saginaw as well? Well, you know what? And it is true. Yes. Like our owner, Dick Garber and Craig Goslin and you know, the rest of Brandon Bordeaux and we have Jimmy Devilano and Chris Osgood, they got sick and tired of finishing eighth and having no players drafted. And they, you do a deep dive. It's not like, you know, we're DDD up the wall, chip it in. We're low, high, just bombing on the net where, you know, you got no play, get it out. And we weren't developing players. And I remember when I got the job, he went into the room and he really believed our team was like a Ferrari of a, of a team. And when they made a mid-season coaching change, he looked at our group and said, we're going to see if, if Laz can drive. We're going to give him the keys to the Ferrari and see if he can drive the car. And it was interesting because it's like all he wanted 
was a different way of playing the game. He looked at the Sioux and you watch, you know, teams like that come in and they're all over the ice. They got possession. They're doing these nipple breakouts. And it's like, this looks amazing. Like, why are we not doing it? So to him, he's like, look, I, I don't care about winning. I care about developing. We have to start doing right by the players that we draft and the families that commit to us by developing their kids on and off the ice. Don't worry about winning. And Dave Drinkle was the same way. He just, he was a GM that wanted to play that way and just couldn't, get it there with you know until he made the coaching change so uh, it was a perfect situation for me because they were speaking my language and it's exactly what I wanted to do and I had an ownership group and a GM that were just foaming at the mouth to play that way so they really and we've seen the results it's been good for two years and we'll see like we're going to lose eventually Cole Perfetti and Suzuki and Millman and Drew and Jenkins and Wild and all these guys are going to move out of our program and we'll see how good the process is can our next generation of guys that are kind of year two year three of going through this take the ball and and continue to develop and is it are we just winning because we got elite players like i get it i got some really elite guys that on a lot of nights we win games and it looks great and it's their talent over coaching it's just pure talent so ken is our development model working we'll see i'm really excited about the guys like the josh blooms and the t-bone cods and we have multiple guys like that in our organization that are to me like studs that are going to be now the front runners. And I think we'll see how our model's working. You know, it's going to be really it's exciting for me when we get playing to see that. So. so let me ask you a question. So, you know, Jeff and I both play junior hockey, awesome playing junior hockey. And I feel like I've never coached at that level, but I've had different conversations with guys at your level um, and USHL and BC and, you know, everywhere in between uh, higher, low levels or whatever. Um, how do you develop that next generation because a lot of times in junior hockey you know you're going to have a stud player that's probably playing he's a little bit younger that might be playing on the third line and might not be getting the minutes he's used to playing because he's got to beat out Cole Perfetti and Ryan Suzuki and those guys so how as a coach can you go about you know developing those players when maybe they're not getting those touches that they're used to getting in minor hockey and and going through some of that adversity and not being the best player for the first time in their life. Um, how do you go about that as a junior OHL coach? There are lots of ways. One, you got to invest in them. A lot of times what I find, and I've been guilty of this too, that you, you don't put any time or investment in your young guys. You almost wait for them to become the, the older guys. And then now they're your guys that you want to invest in. Like you almost, you got to put more time and effort into them than you do your, your other guys, getting them up to speed and building confidence and relationships and giving them the tools as a player. And this past year, like uh, we had a great team where I'm frustrated. And I think I didn't do a great, good enough job as I didn't, our young guys, I should have played more, you know, like they played on a, on a regular night, like they got their minutes, but they should have had more minutes. And again, like, again, you get caught in that trap of like trying to win games and get late. Like you have to, let these kids go out and get some shifts. And I walked down to our GM's office this summer and I was pissed off at myself because I'm like, should have played them more. I got to play them more. And they were getting good minutes. He's like, no, you know, like they're, they're doing good. You're too hard on yourself, but you can't lose sight of their development path either just because you have some big dogs ahead of them. They're eventually going to be your program. You better develop them. One thing we're going to do this year in Saginaw is what I think happens with a player that comes in, he's on the power play in minor hockey. He's, he's a stud. He comes in a junior in his first year, maybe sometimes two, but a 16 year old year in general, they're not on power play. So they lose a whole year of development on the power play because they don't get any reps. So what we've done, we call it the American hockey league group. We're going to have a third unit this year that will go out they'll get their meetings. They'll get their skill sessions. They'll get their live reps against our top penalty killers. And they're going to get like a, where we start practice a day where it's like, okay, for the first 
eight minutes, we're doing four reps of power play with a break in between each rep, but it's going to be live, like stoppages. It's going to be intense. Like we'll, we'll track the score for the year. But I think if you put them in that environment every day, or you give them a chance once a week or whatever it is, they're not going to lose a full year of development on the power play because their power play days, like we're going to post the results in the room. It's not, it's going to be really competitive where they're not just like, Oh, it's our power play day. It's like, here's our chance. But what'll happen is let's say the first unit, we have a flank player that gets hurt. The second unit flank player should be able to move up in that spot, assuming they're playing somewhat of the same system. Well, now the American League flank guy, he's going into that spot on the second unit. So what will happen if they can get their reps during the year if injuries happen? But I think if you do it that way, there's an opportunity to develop them throughout the year on the power play so they don't miss a year. So now at 17 or 18, when they come into their power play time, they've gotten live reps for a year or two. They haven't lost development. And I think that's one thing I've noticed in juniors. You, you forget that those guys don't get the reps. Now they're your power play guys. You're like, wow, you don't know what you're doing on a power play. It's like, well, I haven't been on it in a year or two. Like we expect. So we're trying to find ways like that with our young guys to get them developmental reps. So they can naturally take over when it's their turn or they're, we're developing them. We're doing right by the player and making sure we're developing them. Does that create a little bit of internal good competition in the team sure. in terms of spots? Because that's something that we would do when I was at Cornell. Like we would, you know, we take guys out. Like if they weren't playing well, you know, you have like what you're saying, you already have, you know, guys, there's an AHL team. You might get sent down, you know, to the AHL, to that group, if you're not doing. So does that create some, some, and, and we always felt like for our special teams, like when we didn't have that, when we had, it was stagnant and everybody kind of knew their spot and stuff, it always got stagnant. But when there was always a little bit of competition and there was a little bit of feed in the fire, you know, guys were executing a little bit more. They were competing a little bit harder because the power play, especially if we're talking about it, like that's one of those systems where, a lot of times when your team gets on the power play, everybody takes a breath. So it's going to be a little bit easier right now. And that's, that's bad. (laughs) That's recipe for a mediocre power play at best. You know, you want power plays that are freaking hungry. They're moving pucks, they're hounding retrievals, you know, they're making plays, crisp passes, all that kind of stuff. Um, So like that competitive aspect, do you see that with having that HL type roster? If that's what you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. And we got to hold guys accountable. Like, like let's just say our American league group, goes out and like you know whoever like say it's last year and josh bloom and, and t-bone cotter on it and they have an unbelievable week well if we get out into a game or on our third or fourth power play and both units have been been average like one of two things can happen the american league unit can just go straight out like you guys were on you guys were fire this week our power play tonight has been brutal we've had four chances we've got no tucks and we can't even get any like grade a looks like these guys can beat it. You guys going to get your chance. So it, it holds the group accountable knowing that they, yeah, and it, there's those young dogs that are looking to come out and get their opportunity. And guess what? If they get out in a live game and they do well, why would I not put them out again? Maybe they start pushing for, for top spot. Like whoever, at the end of the day, we had an unbelievable, we had five NHL players last year. If you count Cole Perfetti as an NHL player, we had five guys that were drafted to the national hockey league on the 16th best power play in the league. We're doing something wrong. You know what? And a lot of that falls on me. I don't think I, was in that area enough like i just kept thinking like oh we got to work these guys through like they were doing when you go back and look at the tape they were doing horrendous stuff like i should have yanked that unit a long time ago and been like look guys like there's guys going ahead of you now you guys drive our team you're our best players but we're having an honest conversation with you five guys like we're 15th or 16th in the league like do you think you should go out like and if you have that relationship with the players where you pose that question to them they're probably going to sit there and be like yeah that's like we shouldn't like we're we're just not there if they're saying yeah we should go out then there's an issue there so to me i didn't do a good enough job just being like you know what guys that we got to move in a different direction for a little bit to see if we can get some spark here in our power play and try to light that fire into them so 
but again, like you talk about the dynamic of coaching, those are your best players and do you lose you? And how do you manage your whole team? And then you got NHL teams and agents and like it, it becomes a whole whack of thing. It's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's, if you're going to survive in this league, you have to figure out how to do that. All that stuff as a coach. That's a lot to think about. That's a whole nother can of worms, but I really want to get back to you talking about, you know, the guys, the younger guys not losing a year of development because, you know, Toph was, I think, the youngest player to play in the USHL at like 11 when he played, well, he was 15 or 16. Um, maybe the youngest player ever up to that point, probably like, you know, pump his tires and, and you know, just seeing him come home every day and, you know, being unhappy sometimes or probably not getting the power play time. And I think about my first year where I was an absolute plug, you know, fourth line in and out of the lineup, like confidence in the gutter, you know, um, talking to some of them. I have a guy who might be the youngest guy in the USHL this year or one of, and, you know, we talk every other week about his confidence, you know, I'm not scoring and, you know, cause that's all he's done his whole life and, and just getting those power play touches. And, and it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like a, not a gimme or anything, but like, you know, it's going to excite those guys too, on top of them still keeping their power play senses sharp. And then a guy gets injured, they go in there. I think that is absolutely genius. And I hope all, even that, that could be done at U16, U18, you know, the, I think more of those guys should be playing power play than just, you know, guys not playing, but like coaches, I hope you really that are listening to this, take that idea, take that advice and run with it because I was in that situation. I know Toph was in that situation where, you know, I got no power play time deservedly my first year in junior lost a lot of confidence offensively and kind of really had to battle for it to get back throughout my whole second year of junior until my third year, my confidence was really back. So I think that's really important for coaches to hear from probably U 16 on up. I think, I think to touch on that point too, like as a coach strategically look for a few ways early to get those guys some, some quick, like live game reps where it gets everybody's attention. And they also believe now like, Hey, like we're actually going to get some chances here. Like we, it's, yeah, it's important. We're on it, but like, this is really important because we actually got live reps asking. We got jumped in. So now that group is like so hungry, pushing the other two groups. And as a group, they're having conversations about what they have to do as a group to have success. So now they're starting to go back and forth again. We talk about that conversation thing. Uh, they're sitting there as a unit on in, in the dressing room or on a meeting day or somewhere talking about what they can do with their power player. They might see an NHL goal and send it to their group. And be like, Hey guys, check this out. Like they're developing themselves they're teaching themselves they're coming up with ideas themselves and they know like hey last is going to give us a few good looks here we got to be ready like if it's our power play day wednesday like come to the rink ready no dicking around. so it just drives your culture and your pace and it's yeah i think if we can execute the idea that's potentially be something that hopefully for us is like another competitive advantage in the development side and the special team side I love that. And I, and I even think taking like a step further, like you talking about, you know, they're going to be the next generation and, and small pods and communication. You're obviously a big guy looking forward with communication and stuff like that. Like going to your older guys and being like, Hey, you know what? Tonight I want to get that, that AHL group, that third PP. I want to get them one or two reps. And I want you guys to know that because you know, you were them one day and think about how happy you'd be if you got on the power play. It's going to get them motivated to come to practice harder and stuff like that. Now your older guys are excited for the younger guys because they know going in that they're going to get in a game, you know, one or two shifts, right? So mm -hmm. instead of them looking back at you on the bench, like, come on, man, like power play, I want to get in. Now you've kind of told them it's going to happen. Now they're like banging the boards for the boys and, you know, great job, you know, young guys, great power play. And now they're excited. Now your old guys can teach them and talk to them about, Hey, I saw this. 
And then it goes right back to what you said earlier, those small groups, when the players start to teach themselves, they actually learn more than you talking at them. So I think that's another good way for the older guys, not only for team unity and bonding and stuff like that, they're also going to teach themselves what they need to be doing on the power play by talking to those younger guys and kind of teaching them also kind of teaching themselves. So, yeah, I think, I think, you know, that just makes so much sense. I've literally never heard anyone say this to me. I, I love this idea. I, your point right there was the best. Is the, the top units or the first, second unit are going to, by teaching the younger guys, or that's the value that you're going to get. And that's a great point that I never really thought of either. It's like, that's where the true value should come from on their end is like being mentors. Everyone wants to mentor and show people the way. That's a, it's a valid point. And that's so, so valuable too. Like how great is it as a young guy to like Vex, like just like literally pitch picturing playing junior hockey again and seeing like an older guy being happy for you doing something well the and, best. And, and just like how unbelievable of a feeling that is, you know, and uh, that's, that's how you create that team chemistry. That's the, that mentorship that you're talking about Laz. like, you know, having the ability to teach those guys and, and have the older guys feel good about their mentorship and their leadership, because at the end of the day, you need good leaders on your team to win too. And, and so when you're developing those leaders by putting them in those situations and, and talking about those certain things and bringing, bringing them in and telling them the why it's just like, it creates for such an amazing culture, especially at the junior hockey level where, where that's everything, where you have, you know, you have some individual um, motives. Everybody wants to get to the next level, you know, at the OHL, they want to get drafted. They want to play pro hockey. Um, so you got to deal with that a little bit. You got to deal with the external um, forces of the agents and, and the NHL teams and the parents there. And there's so much kind of like noise, but then when you can create that kind of all in together for everybody, that, that I think that's a hard thing to do in junior hockey, but when you can do that and you invest in that, not only are you going to win more, but you're just, you're going to have a lot more fun freaking coming to the rink every day too. <laughs> We've all been on teams where it's not like that. And it's like, Oh God, it's miserable coming to the rink. And then when everybody's in it together and everybody's having fun and the older guys are like, everybody's on the same page. Like that's just, it's so much fun to come to the rink. I'll tell you, it becomes generational too, where when guy, the older guys graduate out, yeah, how they've treated the young guys and the culture they've created through those relationships. The young guys are going to treat those new young guys that way. And they pass it on where, yeah, like you, and it has to be fun. That's the number one thing we stress in our group. You have to have fun. You can smile and be a competitor. You can laugh. We had laugh on the bench. There's guys laughing on the bench when the game's intense, but they're laughing, but you're still competitive. I know when you go over the board, you're going to go, you know, as hard as you can. So to me, the best teams are enjoying what they're doing. And so how do you create that environment amongst your staff, amongst your players daily? And you got to be able to laugh at yourself when things don't go perfect in a practice or, you know, something happens like laugh, like it's okay to laugh and, and use it as an opportunity to kind of just like take a step back. Cause it is a grind, man. They, these poor kids, like they're in the prime of their lives and, you know, they're in the rink every day, they're traveling, they got school, they're away from their families, et cetera, et cetera. It's a grind. And you forget sometimes that they're human beings. They're just kids. They got a lot of pressure on them. And how can you, as a coach, relieve that pressure? Sometimes you got to give a player a hug and say, hey, man, you okay? Like, everything okay? And we're, we're big about that. We hug our players all the time. We ask them if they're okay. Do they need anything? Take them for lunch. Take them for breakfast. Hey, you know, some guys will knock. They're comfortable. Say, you know what? I'm not having a great day today, lads. And it's like, you know what? I'm not going to say nothing today at practice. And it's not because I'm I, – it's not about leaving you alone. It's just about – I'm going to let you go through just all I ask is you work as hard as you can today. I know you're not feeling well, just work as hard as you can work on your game. When you want to get out of here, if you want to skip the workout today and just get out of here and go home and get away, don't be shy about it. And a player like that, sometimes they'll do the work side. Sometimes they'll skip it. They'll always come back in a day or two and be like, man, that meant a lot. Thank you. And then 
now they know I have their back. And it's like, so they missed the workout. Like it can't become a habit where they're missing every workout. Then you start to catch like, but they, what they truly appreciate is like, man, he treated me like a human being. I'm not just a hockey player. Like I'm a person to him and he cares about me. And like, you know what? I think you got to look for those opportunities as coaches. You got to listen, listen to your people and just, you know what, man, I get it. Like I have bad days as a coach. It's like, you know what, boys, I tell our guys all the time, like I'm not having a great day, boys. I'm, I might be, I might be a little chippy today at practice. I'm just, I'm frustrated or I'm whatever. I've got something going on with my family. And the guy's are like, yep, no problem. We get it. They know where you're coming from. There's just tell them, be vulnerable in front of your group. And it's amazing uh, how everybody gets on the same page. And it's like, I, I've had days like that. And I know our captain came to our team. He's like, you know what? We told our guys today we had a, we had, we have to have a really good practice. Cause you know, you communicated to us. You were having a great day. We made sure we worked hard for you. And it's like, thanks man. Like I appreciate that. But that is unity. And it's because you're vulnerable with your group, but it's, they know I'm going to do the same thing for them when it's my turn to pick them up. So, and you got to create that. What a, this is unbelievable. What a hilarious difference from our junior experiences. Eh? You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is literally like black and white. I love this. This is pretty cool. You pretty know cool. what though? I had like one of my years playing, I had a couple, like I had three different coaches in juniors cause I played junior hockey for a million different freaking years. And you know, one of the coaches that I had, Will Nickel, I've talked about him, you know, I don't know if you know him last probably like he's, uh, he's in Vegas right now, player development, but um, I, I always tell this story because like, he's the guy you wanted to run through a brick wall for like everything that you're talking about as a coach and the things that we believe in, he did that 15 years ago. Um, when, when I was playing junior hockey at 18 years old, 19 years old. And, uh, it, it was amazing because the more you care, the more you can be hard on your players and the more you can hold them accountable. And I, like, he would be that guy. Hey, hey like he would always take you aside or always tell you the why. And I, I distinctly remember this one time I, I've probably told this story on the podcast before, but you know, I was a captain of the team team wasn't playing very well. And he brought me into the office. He says, look, you're not playing really well right now. We need more out of you, but I'm going to do something and you might like it. You might not, but I think this is going to be good for the team. So I was like, all right, what's, what's up. So he's like, I'm going to absolutely blast you in front of the team right now. I am going to make you like, I'm just, just be ready. Like, I'm not going to be nice to you. And, and, but I'm bringing you in here right now to tell you that the reason why I'm doing this is because I think number one, I think you can take it, but what I need from you is I'm going to blast you because you're the captain. And then I need you to go out and have the best practice you've had and have a great attitude and be positive and, and all that kind of stuff, because these guys are going to take your lead. If I go in and I blast the entire team, we're going to have a crappy practice. Like everybody's going to go out feeling bad and, and all of that. So he's like, I'm going to blast you. Just, I'm just letting you know right now, it's nothing personal. I'm just kind of making an example and then we can go from there, but I need you to respond. And, and then, so he did. So when like your typical, um, typical thing before practice coach comes into the meeting and blasts me for how I played on the weekend. And then I knew that I had to go out and have a good attitude and all that kind of stuff. And we had a great practice. Like those are the kinds of things, just the relationship building and the telling of the why it just goes such a long way. And I'm sitting here on a podcast 20 years later, still like that was a seminal moment of my life and a huge learning thing for me like as a hockey player, number one, and then now, you know, as, as a coach on the other side of the bench and, and it just, it, it all, again, it comes back to the relationships and really investing in that. And, uh, uh, he's, he's working in the NHL now because of how, of those kinds of things, you know, it's just mm-hmm. investing in people. People, uh, you know what I had, some of the best things about this game is like at my wedding, I had seven guys off my Marley team that in minor hockey come to our wedding that, you know, four of them, I think, or five of them now are in the NHL that are friends. Like they are not, 
they're guys that play for them, but they're friends. And like, like you said, those relationships that are lifelong and, you know, like not everyone's going to play pro hockey, but I want to make sure for sure that guys can look back at any point in their time and say, I love playing for last. Like I loved my time in Saginaw. That's the win. That's the success for me. Like they look back and they, they're like advocates of your program and they're advocates of you and they can call, call you at any time with situations. And, and you like, and I still have guys to this day that play in the national league. They'll reach out when they're struggling and say, Hey, like, what do you think? Like what's going on? And they, you just tell they want a conversation, but that relationships. And I get that with our, our players. Now guys will come in and I could tell right away when a guy starts a conversation that it's not about hockey it's something he wants to talk about. And, again like you, you dial in you let them talk and you kind of go through this but they to me you're proud of that because they trust you to what they're going to tell you they trust you with it and i think any coach out there you gotta it's again it's about the person first and the player development not the winning and they you can get that relationship with guys where they can come in and they can tell you anything and they trust you and that is what you should be proud of as a coach because you're doing something right and then you know they're going to work hard for you you're going to work hard for them you're going to win all those things funnel into winning so but it's about people like in today's day and age it's a scary world i got two young kids and i keeps me awake sometimes worrying about all the mental health issues and the drugs out there and all this stuff in the world like you worry about your kids and now i have other people's kids that I'm in charge of. And I have to be able to look that parent in the eye and know that I did everything right by their kid the best that I could. And I'm, that's not always perfect, but I love my players first and foremost, always will. And it's about, it's about them and making sure they're okay before anything to do with hockey. Awesome. Amen. <laughs> Amen, awesome. man. Well, I you just mic dropped it. So we might as well just, end <laughs> we've been doing this for an hour and a half now, but this was awesome, man. Like this was so great getting the chance to, to bring you on here and, and, uh, and talk to you. Um, you know, it's been a while since we've seen each other back in the St. Mike's buzzers days yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. And you've earned your way to, to being a head coach in, in the OHL right now. And, um, just an awesome, awesome thing. So we really appreciate you coming on here, lads, wish you nothing but best of luck uh obviously it's a tough year this year for you guys not being able to play but uh a lot of good things to come for you and uh look forward to having some more of these conversations i'm going to be freaking on your ear all the time now <laughs> so uh, right, appreciate you coming on man awesome well thanks for having me guys it's uh fun to talk hockey. <laughs> absolutely